燃え上がれガンダム届かせてこの胸にかすかに残る君の声を今じゃない現実でさまよい続けてた Hello and welcome to Weekly Suit Gundam, the special bonus podcast brought to you by the folks at the Weekly Stuff Podcast. I am Sean Chapman. And I'm Jonathan Lack. And we are here, Jonathan, to talk about the end of an age because we're talking about the end of Mobile Suit Gundam Age. We're talking about Uh, either arcs three and four or just arc three. I kind of just think of it as being one big third arc.、Um, but we're talking about episodes 29 to 49, which is the ending of Gundam Age. We've, of course, covered the first two arcs, which is episodes one to 28, on last week's episode, or not last week, because this is not a weekly show. Two weeks ago, we talked about that.、Um, and then we are also going to touch on the OVA kind of compilation two part thing they did called、uh, Memory of Eden, which kind of compiles together some of the stuff about、uh, Asamu and. Uh, Zayhart's relationship. But we are here to kind of just finish up our discussion on Gundam Age and see how this、um, show wrapped up. Yes, absolutely.、Um, and I'll say, I last week, last time we recorded on Weekly Suit Gundam, I said, you know, I really like Gundam Age. And I used the word like very specifically because I would have said, like, This show has a lot of great stuff. It's very interesting. It's got some weak parts here and there. And so, you know, I don't think it's absolute top shelf Gundam. I don't love it in the way I love original Gundam or, you know,、um, Zeta or something like that. But I think it's a good show. And I will say, having now finished it, I will elevate it to love. I love、hmm. Mobile Suit Gundam Age. I think it is a great show. I think it is an imperfect show. It is not, I still wouldn't put it at like the top, like S tier Gundam. But I would put it above some shows that I did not think I would have ranked it above when we do our final rankings. And I think it is a fantastic Gundam series that is easily, of everything we've watched, by far the most underrated thing in this franchise. Like,、oh, it、yeah. is, like, you know, because like, something like After War Gundam X isn't very well known, but I feel like the people who know it like it. Gundam Age is one that is actively reviled in some circles. And I just think that's stupid. I think this show is really deeply special in a lot of ways. I think these third and fourth arcs only solidify how much I like it. I think the third arc is really smart and has some of the best stuff in the whole show. I think the fourth arc has a couple of rocky episodes and then builds to, I think, one of the best endings any Gundam show has. I think the final couple episodes of Gundam Age are fucking spectacular.、Uh, and overall, I am extremely positive on this show. And I am very, I'm so pleasantly surprised. There's no other Gundam we've watched where I went in kind of thinking like, I, I was dread, I wasn't dreading Gundam Age, but I knew it had a lesser reputation. And so I thought this one was maybe going to be a little bit more of a chore. And it absolutely was not. This is a diamond in the rough. I love this show. Yeah, I don't know if I'm like as deeply positive on it,、uh, but I really like Gundam Age a lot. Like, I would think I would agree with the stuff that we have watched so far. This is definitely. The most deeply underrated Gundam show. It feels like a Gundam show that just never like, got a fair shake.、Um, that I think people sort of saw it as like,、hey, it's just a Gundam for kids. It looks like a Yokai Watch thing or an Inazuma 11 thing, I guess, in, in the context of the time, and they just kind of dismissed it. 
Um, but it's doing so much stuff that's so interesting. It's got this core premise that I think is just absolute fire, which is having your three Gundam boys covering like a hundred years, basically, of this war between the Earthlings and the Vegans. Um, and I think it has like its messiness, you know, I think particularly Arc 1 um, has some stuff that, that's pretty rocky. Um, and then I think, you know, I think it is a show that inevitably bites off maybe more than it can fully chew in the sense of like, I mean, it has three fucking protagonists. It's a huge story. And so it has some pacing issues, I think, um, as it kind of comes into the home stretch. But it's a great example of a show that like, even if it has some of that messiness in places, it knows where to commit its energy that's most important and it pulls off and like nails absolutely all the major beats it needs to and all the major story arcs all the three main characters flit asamu and kyo all get really great climaxes to their stories that resonate with each other um and yeah i think it's a very very smart show um that i honestly wish it could have had like like looking at the whole run something about like maybe like five to seven maybe eight more episodes and what it has to like flesh out a little bit of that pacing and allow some stuff to breathe um and i think that would maybe for me if it could have done that pushed it into that like absolute like great gundam level um but as it stands it is among the best au shows that we have watched um and i think it is one that if people have not really kind of committed to um and maybe they kind of toss it off or just like thought like uh you watched the first five episodes and didn't like it and, and dropped it there it is one that very much rewards you going through and watching it all the way and it's one that i think is very rewarding on a rewatch um, because it's one i think i enjoy gundam age more on having watched it again particularly that early stuff knowing where the show is going and seeing them build up particularly with flit as a character and the thoughtfulness with which they approach that character from the very beginning um, it is a really smart show. That's a really good time. Absolutely. And this is one I'm excited to revisit one day because one of my overall just theses reactions to it is that this is a show that sets up some very fundamental ideas in episode one, like with mm -hmm. the idea of flit and legacy and the Gundam as a savior and that view. And then in episode 49, the finale, it pays off on those ideas yes. very directly and very fulsomely as beautifully and as perfectly as I could imagine those ideas being paid off on. And I think, and, and maybe that sounds basic, but that is something a lot of shows, including some Gundam shows we really like, have not done perfectly, right? Mm -hmm. And and a lot of just TV shows that are not Gundam do not manage to do. And I think I am I am willing to forgive bigger pockets of messiness than I think even this show has if you can have an arc that clear-headed that you execute that well, especially with the high concept of this show where that point A to point B is not just Flit, it's two sons, a son and a grandson, who are integral to the continuation of that A to B journey. I think yeah. what this show is doing is extremely smart and soulful, and I really, really what solidified it for me is I think the last three episodes mm -hmm. are stupendous episodes. I think they are like at times like Tomino finale level good in how well directed they are in how smart they are in bringing all of these themes and characters together in how clear-headed this show is about its own ideas you know it is it's like the anti-Gundam Seed Destiny in certain places where it's just like yes. as messy and like that show did not know what it wanted to be about Gundam Age has just a sheer clarity to it that I find really invigorating and again I can forgive a lot of messiness if you've got that overarching clarity. And I do think this show has it. 
100%. And, and it ends up with, like, something that I felt coming into it. Like, the main reason I, I was... The thing I was excited about rewatching Gundam Age 4 was I just remember loving the character of Flit specifically so much. Yeah. And coming out of it, he is um, amongst the best Gundam boys. Because he's not just a Gundam boy. He's a Gundam boy and a Gundam man and a Gundam grandpa. Um, <laughs> and, and seeing that journey... And the fullness of that character arc. Um, it's just one of the most rewarding characters in this entire franchise, which is saying a fucking thing, because there are some really brilliant characters across the history of Gundam. And Flit, I think, like stands amongst the best as one of the most interesting characters this franchise has produced. I mean, it is the special thing that Gundam Age has that no other Gundam can lay claim to, which is that it tells the story of a man's life. Yeah. The entire thing. I, I guess you can say that with Amuro. The difference is Amuro, like, dies in his 30s. And Flit does have this full, like, you know, when we end the series, he's a 70-year-old man, right? And we have seen him basically because he, he was born on the day this conflict started. We go from, like, birth to past the, if you go with the epilogue, past the death of this man. And we see this entire lifelong journey. And we see how other generations of his own you know progeny play into it and there's just there's no other Gundam that tries something quite like that and it's it's also just cool to go to like 2011 Gundam's 30 some years old now and it's still doing stuff that it's never done before there's a lot in Gundam Age that is like recapitulating and redoing themes that we've seen in other shows including very recently like like um, Ezel Kant's whole plan is very reminiscent of the Destiny plan in Gundam Seed Destiny, right? Mm -hmm. um, yep. There's a lot of stuff in here that is very similar to Kira in Gundam Seed. But I think they're the things that make this special make it really, really special. Absolutely, 100%. So, yeah. so we already covered all the, the history. Like, there's no, there's no, like, and then secretly halfway through the show, here's the surprise, like, extra history section. I mean, it's all the same stuff, obviously. It's the same staff, all that, uh, just continuing on. Um, so where do you want to start, Jonathan, with talking about this second half of well, Gundam Age? I have a specific place I want to start, but before that, just on the history point, I do just want to say... It's, it's you know, this is one 49-episode run. There was no break. We added a break, but there was no break while airing. And this is the only full-length Gundam show like this since Zeta that doesn't have a recap special, which yeah. I thought was interesting. Double uh, O doesn't have one either, but Double O aired in season, so it doesn't quite count for that. There is one episode near the beginning of the fourth arc that has several extra-length flashbacks where I very much went, hmm, they, they needed some extra time in this episode, but it does not have a full recap special. And overall, like, I do think there's a little bit of, like, you can tell the animation they, they pull back on in the fourth arc so that they can afford the last three episodes. Uh -huh. But overall, for a 49-episode year-long show with no break, it's a pretty impressive production, I, I think, if you judge it for what it actually is, right? Oh, yeah, 100%. I mean, I think it is one of the smoothest year-long shows that is in the Gundam franchise. I mean, there's a reason yeah. why the franchise, in, like, the anime industry in general, has moved away from this structure. Um... But yeah, absolutely. Like, I one thing I'm surprised at, honestly, is that there isn't a recap episode. Like, it feels like, you know, it ends at 49 episodes, which is, like, a slightly awkward. Like, normally you would go for a, like, 50 to 52 would be your normal uh, four-core or a whole year run. Um, I'm kind of surprised that there isn't just, like, hey, here's between, you know, the Asamu and Kyo stuff, here's a recap episode or something. Because there's a lot of space to do one of those. Um, but it's kind of nice that they don't because it just makes it easier 
for me to watch it because it's like, oh, now I don't have to worry about, yes. do I bother sitting through this? Like, is there going to be the one scene that, like, is, like, hidden in the recap that is actually vital? You know, like, you know, Seed and Seed Destiny both have that problem. Um, this, you don't have to worry about it. And, yeah, it is a very uh, impressive production, for sure. Yeah. But where I want to start, because you, you asked me where should we start, and I want to start with Keo, who is our third protagonist, our third Gundam boy, and I think Keo is a great character who is absolutely integral to this show working. Mm -hmm. He is, like, if you were to ask me, like, who's your favorite Gundam boy in the series? It's not Keo. I don't think Keo is going to be anyone's answer. But I also think that's by design. And it's something yeah. that I already have seen on Twitter, like, some people saying, like, yeah, but Keo is such a bore or something. And I couldn't disagree more strongly, in part because I think the show knows exactly what it needs from that third character. It knows exactly how to differentiate him from the other two. And I think the stories it allows them to tell are different, which is very important for this like three-tier structure they do. But also, it is he is the key that ultimately unlocks the overall thematic journey of this show. And I think I think Keo deserves more respect because I think he is as integral to the tapestry that is Gundam Age as either Flit or Asamu. Uh, and the show, and also like the show doesn't like sell him short. The show does not pull a Shin Asuka with him and just kick him out so that they can finish Flit's arc, right? They, he is as important in the finale as he is when we meet him, if anything, even more so. Yeah, absolutely. Like, I think it's that thing where I think that like audiences just, like, are occasionally bad at understanding like why a show or a story is working and so it's it's very much i think about this a lot in terms of pirates of the caribbean where they made that choice for the fourth movie where they're like oh we should just make why isn't jack sparrow just the main character like why do we have to have this will turner dude is like the reason why people get to like jack sparrow is because he's not the main character right because if you have your super eccentric main character thing then jack sparrow has all these narrative duties put on that character's shoulders that don't make him interesting anymore um, and, and you then have like the reverse side of it is like, people are like, oh, but this Will Turner guy, he's just a wet rag. It's like, he needs to be a wet rag for you to like Jack Sparrow, right? Like, like these <laughs> characters exist in a narrative context, um, that like none of the characters exist on their own. So yeah, like I Orlando agree, like, Bloom walks so Johnny Depp can run, right? Basically. Yeah. Like you need to have that dynamic because if you had him be this like super interesting, weird over the top character, then there's no room. Like they're all, then he's sucking the oxygen that Captain Jack Sparrow needs to be an interesting character in that Pirates movie. Yeah. Um, and Keo, I think is like, it's a similar thing where Flit and Asimu, particularly Asimu, I think like stand out a lot on their own as like their Gundam boys. And Asimu is the one that gets, I think like the most drama you know he gets the like the really big personal arc his whole drama with his dad his thing with wolf the love triangle between him romery and zayhart um and so they really build him up to be this like really charismatic really likable character um and then you get keo who's a lot more of like a standard gundam boy like he he's got a lot of uso in him from victory gundam like he's got that innocence he's much younger he reads i think even younger than he's supposed to be um, and so it's not the character that you're going to like, I think it's going to be your absolute fave or whatever. Um, but it is a character that he needs to be like that because he also has to share the stage with his pirate dad and <laughs> fucking grandpa Gundam, right? Like, like yes. he, he has to coexist with those protagonists way more heavily than Asimu has to coexist with Flit in his arc because Keo then has to share the stage with them in what they call the fourth arc, which is that last 10 episodes 
um, where they it's the three generations arc or whatever, where it all comes together. But Keo is still the main protagonist of that arc. They don't switch it to being about all three of them in that way. Um, but that's where they resolve the character arcs for all three characters. But Keo is your main center throughout the entire second half of this show. And he needs to be a little bit more bland and a little bit more innocent um, for him to be able to fulfill that function. And I think he fulfills that function super well and it allows them to tell really interesting stories because Keo is the only character you could have that you could then take to Vagan and have him be um, on Mars and make his Martian friends, right? And have that whole story arc, which is like the like linchpin of this entire fucking show in many ways. Like you need to be able to build up to that moment and have a character who's able to see the world in such a different way than his father and grandfather that he can so readily and openly accept other people that are so different from him or come from such a different place. Um, and that's what I think is the magic of Keo as a character uh, and what allows them to sort of like really open up the second half of the story and execute on all the narrative themes and the character arcs that they had been building up in the first two pieces. Part of constructing a protagonist in any story is choosing what you want that protagonist to reflect in the story uh -huh. and what you want that story to reflect on the protagonist. And in a show like Gundam Age, where you are doing a three-protagonist structure, you have to be very careful about how each protagonist is going to reflect something different onto this ongoing, continuous story, right? Um, it's, it's, as we say, a very compressed version of, like, Gundam Zeta Double Zeta, where you have yeah. Amuro, Camille, and Judo, who all reflect very different things onto what is one continuous saga and world. Um, Gundam Age just does it in one series. And so you have Flit, who is, he is touched by this war literally from the moment he is born, because he's born on the day the angel falls. He has an anger in him from his most formative experience, which is losing his mother. And he has this belief in the Gundam as savior, and that question that follows him his entire life. Asamu is someone who grows up being Flit, Asuno's son. And he has that hanging him over him his entire life. They're in the midst of this war. He has this chip on his shoulder, all of this stuff. And then you get to Kyo, and what Kyo is for this show is usually the character you'd kind of get on the starting side of it, but we didn't have, which is the innocent, the tabula rasa. He's the one who, like, very clearly, and I think, like, the third arc um, gets kind of down to business faster than either of the first two. Like, it is, Kyo is, like, in the Gundam before, I think, even the act break of his first yeah. episode. So you're right into it. But I think it does a very good job in those first couple episodes of, of like, through action introducing you to Kyo and that this is someone who's been pretty sheltered. Uh, his dad was not around, but he grew up on Earth. His grandpa, like, clearly, like, Flit was more present in Kyo's life than he was in Asamu's. Yes. And also he grew up during this time where the war is sort of at a standstill and he's very far from it. And so he has a real innocence about him that is uh, very different than either Asamu or Flit, where Asamu and Flit have a certain naivety to them when they're young, and Kiyo has that, but Kiyo has a real, like, like, lack of sense of the world that is very childlike and is very real and, I think, relatable if you're willing to, like, like open up to the character that way. And I think the show is able to use that in a couple of different ways. Uh, like, I found the first couple arcs of uh, episodes of the third arc some of the most disturbing in the whole series uh -huh. because of what it implies about Flit and Keo's relationship where... Like, on one level, Flit has been a good granddad to this kid, better than he probably was a father to Asamu, but he also, much of his, like, love language 
was training him to be the Gundam pilot in a like simulator-esque capacity where he was kind of like indoctrinating this boy through his entire boyhood to see war as distant and non-physical and non-tangible and like a video game so that when Keo gets in the Gundam, he's already, like, he's a much better pilot at the start than either Flit or Asamu were. He's a stronger X-rounder. He has a better sense of how to do things. But he also has a sense of it that, like, this is a fucking video game. And so his arc is, like, having that stripped away and then being taken to Vagan and seeing the full reality of it. And it's just a very different arc than either of the other two characters are allowed to have. And it's an arc you have to have if you're going to do the ending this show inevitably has to do, which is someone knocking Flit out of it and trying to use all of his immense intelligence and empathy and knowledge for something other than destruction, which is creation and creating a new future. Um, you can't do that without Keo. Yeah, it, absolutely. It is... It's the thing where I think the way he contrasts with Flit in particular is so strong because, you know, Asimu is older, right, when we pick him up in Arc 2 than, than Flit or Kyo are. And, but Kyo and, like, young Flit from Arc 1 are clearly, like, about the same age. Um, and it's very, I think, striking how different they are because Flit has already been kind of, like, tainted by this cycle of, like, grief and, and hatred. Uh, that I think is so much about what the show is, right? And you see that in Arc 3, where you then get access to Ezlecon and see that the entire reason why all this happen is happening is because of grief, right? And people lashing out and kind of losing sight of what's important because of this intense grief that they have. Ezlecon from his son flipped from the loss of his mother when he was a little kid. Um, and so having that contrast of Flit in Arc 1 has a lot of those traits that Keo had, but he can't embrace them because he's got this hatred in him um, stemming from the loss of his mother that's driving him towards vengeance that prevents him from seeing the world that I think, you know, he knows that he always should be seeing it that way. Um, and yeah, and so having, being able to sort of get this character who is kind of free from a lot of the shackles that his father and his grandfather had um, is so like, it's very liberating, particularly once he gets to Vagan and you see that Keo is the key. Oh, right. He's the guy who can unlock this situation. Um, he's the Gundam boy that we need. Um, yeah, I just think he's a very like rewarding protagonist uh, that just sits so well at the end of this kind of triptych structure to kind of be the character you need to bring us home to the ultimate conclusion that the show is driving towards. And I think he becomes a very rich character. He mm -hmm. he is a little bland in those opening episodes, as you say, by design. You know, he's the one who, you know, like, like there's just less friction for him in getting into this world than for Asamu, right? Because he's got Grandpa's Gundam, as we said last time, maybe the best Gundam episode title ever, Grandpa's Gundam. Um, and, and, you know, he's got that and he's got these skills and he's right onto the diva with his grandpa and everything's going great for him. Uh, and then I think when they start peeling away the layers, it's, you know, it is not the most revelatory, like, Gundam material ever. We have seen the story where someone has, like, a superior officer who teaches them something and then dies and they are touched by it. And they do that with Keo here and that, that one uh, woman character, I forget Shanalua. her name. Shanalua. Shanalua, which I think is a very good story. Uh, mm -hmm. And then you have, the, you know, the trip to Vegan. We have seen stuff like that. Like, I particularly think of, like, Judo and some of the stuff with, like, Double Zeta um, in terms of, like, seeing the enemy. But... 
I think because of the context it's in here, it feels like new life is breathed into those stories. And it feels so essential to the overall, as you say, triptychs tapestry they're sort of weaving together here in Gundam Age that oh, Kyo over that third arc, which I think the third arc is really good. I think like mm -hmm. the second and third arc, like that big middle section are the two like best parts of the show other than I think that last three episode stretch. But like, I think that overall build of like Kyo coming into his own personhood and learning to see the world around him as those eyes that are like clouded by innocence sort of get unclouded is really compelling. And I think those episodes on Vagan are phenomenal. I, they're just great episodes of Gundam. There's, there's like no qualifier there to me. I think they're just great. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're, they are the thing the show is building to. I mean, it, it was when I got to that point, I, my mind was kind of blown away by the fact that that's like two episodes because in my memory, I'm like, that's like Keo's whole arc on the show, right? Like, I thought that was like, <laughs> I thought he ended up on Vegan in like the third episode or something because in my head, it occupies such a big place for the show because it's such a key emotional center um, because it's, it's you know, it's the obvious thing that the show is building towards. Again, this is not some sort of like revelation that you've never seen media do this, but it, I think the thoughtfulness um, and the steady hand with, with which Gundam Age approaches this um, process of starting in arc one with the Vagans being faceless alien dragon fucking Yu-Gi-Oh motherfuckers, right? As you pointed out on Twitter, they all the Vagan mobile suits look like sick ass, like red eyes, black dragons and shit like that um, because they're awesome. Um, but they're totally inaccessible until the very end of arc one. Then arc two, you get a little bit more of them because now you have uh, Zayhart and you have a character that you can sit with on the vegan side and, and get access to their motivation, what they're feeling. And then in this third arc with Keo, you now have a character who gets to actually go to Mars, see what the conditions are, speak with Ezlekant. Like, I mean, he gets access to the real motivation behind the war before even fucking uh, Zayhart does, right? So that process by which you were like slowly pulling, peeling back the layers of this conflict and learning more about what it is to be some like the other right and making them not the other which is what they literally are right they're the ue the unknown enemy originally until now they are not only they're not like even vegans they're humans right they're just humans that live somewhere else and that's it and they're suffering and a lot of their suffering is coming from things that were caused and not at all by their fault and by actually like the government that i'm working for right like those revelations are really important to the show and it's that sort of clarity of vision that Gundam Age has as an entire story to sort of lay out that very steady path that then makes it so satisfying when you get there and you actually go to Mars and you you're like you know I think if you're particularly if you're an adult viewer of the show you're kind of screaming for a lot of shows like please think about the other side like please take one fucking second flit to think about who is sitting in that cockpit that you're blowing up right because flit's never going to do that but you know that that's the key that these people need to sort of start driving towards the, the conclusion of the story and ending this war. And it's so satisfying when Keo shows up and that's the thing that he can do. Absolutely. And I just think that third arc is super tight. It's 11 mm -hmm. episodes. It's the shortest um, of the ones we've had so far. They kind of get shorter over time. And I do see the third and fourth arcs as, as separate just in so much as I think the third arc does tell a story that sort of reaches a natural culmination in Keo getting off of Mars and having had this full experience. And then the fourth arc has, a, there's a little time jump, it's a month. 
And then you have Keo going out in the Gundam and making this new decision about how he's going to fight. And that's kind of what differentiates the two arcs. You also obviously have a new Gundam in that fourth arc, which I was... The, the, the Gundam FX... The Gundam Age FX is good, but the Age 3 is so such a good fucking mobile suit. I was a yes. little sad to see it go. The Age 3... We'll talk about mobile suits later. I just uh -huh. want to plant my flag right now. The Age 3 slaps fucking ass. It's great. Um... But yeah, I think that third arc is just as as good economic anime storytelling goes. That is eleven tight episodes that tell a really good story and feel it feels like it's more than eleven, as you say. Like with the with the vegan part, that's only like the last two or three. Um, but you really do have to have all of that other stuff to get up to that point, and it tells a very big story. Where in those eleven, Keo goes from ah, who's this new kid in in my Gundam age to a very compelling character in his own right. Yeah, absolutely. And to, to, as we're talking about Keo, um, the actor, I thought this was kind of interesting because it makes a lot of sense with how it contrasts. So the actor who plays Keo is Kazutomi Yamamoto. Um, and he's not like a big, big voice actor. And this is like one of like the early like major roles he had. So when he was cast, he was like pretty unknown because most of the stuff I'm looking at his sort of, uh, you know, CV or whatever, like most of this stuff is after Gundam Age. Um, and, and he hasn't had a lot of main roles on shows. And I think there's something you can feel with that in a good way of that he's got a very freshness to the voice. Um, and it kind of reminds me of how Tomino cast Turne Gundam. And we'll get that again when we get to, get to G Reco, that Tomino like moved into this place where he didn't like to use really established voice actors. Um, it's the same thing he did with Brain Powered. Um, like, I think he, he's approaching it i think this for the same reasons that ghibli kind of does this is that you want this really kind of fresh more naturalistic style um and you get that with him from Keo. um and i think it really accentuates that kind of naivete in that innocence of the character um and yeah it's not like the most striking vocal performance like i don't think it's i think the best vocal performance to me in the show is um toshiki toyonaga as young flit like the moment you get young flit again is like this like oh my god this guy was so good on the show i, um, I tears that's the moment that yeah. kind of got me yeah yeah so it's like it's not the most flashy performance but it's kind of like everything else with keo it's the right choice for the character to accentuate what you need in the show to go with this like much younger very fresh actor yeah absolutely no i think i find it a pretty striking in that it is it just sounds so human and like normal uh -huh. and like it's very it's a very savvy casting choice i i agree 100 percent um so do you want to kind of move through the third arc here a little bit and talk about some relevant episodes and points and story beats through this third arc yeah so so you hit on it a little bit but like one of the things that is really striking about the first episode in particular is when you so vegan attacks uh earth and it's the big invasion um, and then Grandpa show, Grandpa Flit shows up with a fucking tractor and a Gundam, and he's like, Keo, get in the Gundam! Um, and Keo gets in the Gundam, and he's like, man, this cockpit, it looks just like those video games you brought home for me. And you get this flashback to uh, Grandpa Flit bringing home this, like, big VR fucking dome thing that he sits in that's basically like a toy version of the, like, training thing that Asimu got in, in Arc 2. Um, and that's where you get this sense of, like, it's it's such a vivid, like, entry into this character's backstory, where you don't have spend a lot of time digging into what Keo's, like, childhood was like, but that image of, like, him with Grandpa Flit, and they're so happy, and they're having a good time, you see how much, like, Keo loves his grandpa, and clearly Flit, you know, is, Flit's retired by the time that Keo is born, 
Um, so he's has able to spend time with Kyo in a way that he never got to spend time with Asamu. And you see that and that love they have, that affection, that time they spend to get together. But you also see how Flit's obsession colors everything in his life to where he has been doing this whole like Ender's Game, last Starfighter thing of like training this kid through video games um, to to be a warrior, right? Like he sees in Kyo that like you are, you know, I kind of fucked up with that Asamu kid, but now I've got my like super X-rounder, right? I've got my magic psychic boy that I can take and he will be, you know, he will surpass me and be an even better X-rounder than I am. And he can be the one to, to, to finish the job even if I can't and get rid of all those damn vegans. And so I think Flit believes he's doing the right thing but he is absolutely like training this child to be a soldier from the moment he can basically hold a joystick. Absolutely. I what I love about and I don't think we can talk about this here, the characterization of Grandpa Flit, as we will yes. lovingly call him, I think it does such a good job with that character of embodying the like core contradictions of Flit as a character, which is that there is an inherent and innate goodness in this man that was there from when he was a boy. And there's also this inherent and innate like hatred and and vengeance quest in him, right? And those yeah. two things are sort of always in conflict and they don't neatly separate. They very much coexist. So like part of obviously the whole backstory with this arc is that Asamu disappeared when Kyo was a baby. And we'll talk about where they go with that in uh -huh. a minute. Um, but it very much feels like Flit did the right thing and he stepped up and became and helped be a father figure and probably helped Romery a lot and like... He did his grandpa duties in a way he never did with Asamu as a father, right? Yeah. Um, and I think, and I think there's even maybe like an an implication that like part of maybe why he's not with the like Federation every day is because of that. Like, because I assume he could have stayed Commander in Chief as long as he wanted. Um, and also, like the war has reached kind of a, a lapse point as like Vagan is preparing on for their whole Earth invasion. So anyway, he's been a good grandpa, and Keo loves him, and he's a good guy. But then you see, oh, 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 so much of their bonding has been through these literal war games, right? You know, or I should say figurative war games that are yeah. preparing for literal war. And, and you know, Flit being aware of his own mortality and I think preparing Keo to, like, take up the banner of this cause eventually, you know? And it is disturbing. And I think it's disturbing because there is that mixture of actual genuine love and this, like, I'm training you to kill masses of people, right? Yeah. If it were just one, it wouldn't be disturbing or as disturbing. I think it's because it's both that you get this real like discomfort with it. And I think that discomfort is so key to how Grandpa Flit is portrayed through this entire back half. We're just like, again, this show is a goddamn character design masterpiece. I love how they redo Flit again for this third arc where I like that his blue hair is a little darker. So it's like his version of going gray is that his yeah. hair is now teal instead of blue. And like he's got more lines and in some ways he looks adorable, especially when he's got the fucking goggles on, right? And in some places he looks kind of terrifying because he is like, he like the lines of his face are sometimes just lines not of age, but of anger, right? Um, and I think it kind of flits back and forth. And that was not a pun. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> yeah. And then the the actor who plays him, the the guy from Naruto, as you yeah, tell us, Kazuhiko Inoue. Yes, Kakashi yeah. from Naruto. Everyone's yes. favorite Naruto character. <laughs> He's so good at like again, like bringing the character to this new age, and and like again, inflecting it with I think those two sides of the character. It's a it's a great and fascinating and, and wonderful characterization and performance. Yeah, it, because it, it does, I think it, like, 
embodies those two contrasts so much of like he has a little bit of that like impish quality to him you want from a good grandpa character that like reflects a little bit of like little kid flit um and it, you know that's like you have the fucking goggles and he's got like the like <laughs> bun in the back of his hair and all that stuff like he's got his fucking leather jacket right he's clearly been like enjoying being retired in a sense that like he's not like all the time this stuck up hardcore military dude he is in arc two where he's like almost like a robot in arc two he just seems so removed emotionally from everything you get so much more of that warmth and humanity coming through from him um as grandpa but you then also have when the vegan stuff comes up he's even more extreme he's even more adamant right like he's out there like taking fucking basically space nukes to go kill every single vegan on by himself by his own hand um and you get those just like very intense very dark moments where you see how deeply that like hatred has sat in the character um I think it's just a really, I mean, you know, again, Flit's my favorite character in the show and one of my favorite Gundam characters because I think this thing you see here um, is, as you're saying, like these two aspects of Flit kind of coexist. And it's this, you know, really haunting thing of his character is that, like, Flit is a character that has such a powerful love, um, but he also has so much hate in him and he can't divorce the one from the other, right? Like, he can't see his love for his grandson without the lens of his hatred for vegan right because his love for people is always reflected by his grief from having lost the people he cares about his mother yudin like then later in arc two wolf um and 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 grudek uh so all these people he cares about that that vegan has taken from him part of his motivation is this sense of grief that he never wants to feel again so all of his love is like refracted through this prism of hatred he has, and it's only gotten like more extreme in his old age. Um, and I think you like just get that so vividly right away from his appearance in in the very first episode of this arc. And like whenever anyone calls him on it, it's it's he's not able to even like fully articulate it mm -hmm. beyond what you said there, which is that they they've taken everything. They keep taking. They keep taking. Right. Um, and so his only way to like understand that is to take back and to take from them. Um, and it's very self-defeating as we see and as Keo is, is very much able to see over the course of this arc. Yeah. So yes, like grandpa, grandpa Flit and his grandpa Gundam, like just that first episode, <laughs> it's just such a great, like you just hit the ground running, um, and it just, it gets right to it. And then like, sort of like the next major story arc you get is, um, all the stuff around i've already blanked out of the character's name even though i just said it shandalua there you go yes. um the shandalua stuff so she's played by gundam veteran Romy park uh the voice of lauren um rarely not playing a little boy um i, I like when Romy yes. park is able to play adult women because it's like she's got such a rich vocal range yes i'll also she's you know probably most famous for edward elric um yeah I did not recognize her until you just said it, um, because again, I don't think I've ever heard Romy Park voice someone who is not a little or adolescent boy. Yes. Um, so there you go. Yes. So we've got Lauren, who is our mentor for uh, Keo. You couldn't ask for a better Gundam boy um, turned into adult woman to mentor our new Gundam boy than Lauren from Turn 8 Gundam, who is the one who has <laughs> best learned the lessons of Gundam and most embodies them. Um, yes. But you have this whole arc, and this is where I think you get a lot of they're pulling from Uso and Victory Gundam. Like, his relationship with Shanalua so much feels like Uso's relationship to, like, the various mother figures he has in that show. 
Um, it's like this complex mix of like the kind of motherliness, the sort of, there's like some amount of attraction there. Um, there's like this deep affection between both of them. And then Shanalua very much has this very motherly or big sisterly attitude towards Keo. Um, and of course that's all building to the revelation that she is spying on the Federation for the Vegans because they, her sister is sick and they're giving her money. Um, but it's, it's your kind of first instance of you getting that, of Keo getting this war is complicated. It's not, there are good guys and there are bad guys. It's a lot more fucking complicated than that because immediately you have the one character who is the person on the crew that cares the most for Keo also is the person who's working technically for the enemy, right? Um, and I think that that, like, sort of four or five initial episodes there that kind of plays out that arc while it's also doing a whole, like, sort of, like, Jabro callback, right, with all the mobile suits landing in the, the jungle and all that shit. Like, I think that that's a really strong stretch of the show as well. Also the only stretch of the show on Earth. This is, uh, yes. this is by far the most space-bound Gundam, if I'm not mistaken, mm -hmm. at least of what we've seen so far. I don't know about the future, but this, this is the only show that only has a couple episodes on Earth. Yep. Yeah. Um... But anyway, yeah, and, and there is, so the, the, yeah, I think you're totally right about the Victory Gundam comparison, because even the name, like, Chandelua, that sounds like she would be, like, one of the women on Victory Gundam. Like, that yeah. name just sounds Victory Gundam-esque to me. And there's a really startling moment where I, that I think of as kind of like the kickoff to this whole arc, which is where Keo comes in from having, like, fought a bunch of mobile suits, and he's like, did you see I got, like, four of them or something? And he's really excited. And she is just horrified for a second, going, those were people. And I think yeah. what's so disturbing about that moment is you see that Keo has been so sort of effectively sheltered by Grandpa Flit that that never occurred to him. Like, mm -hmm. that was not, like, like, like Flit had very much built this, like, mental wall there for him that is something we know happens in the real world with child soldiers, right? Yeah. Of trying to make it so that, like, dehumanizing and, and making it feel like a video game and, like, you're getting your score and all of that. And Chandelier is the one who's like what the hell are you talking about, kid? And it's one of the only moments she, like, reprimands him, right? And it's a very startling moment for him. Um, and then you get into all the stuff with, with her being a, a technically a traitor. And the way everyone views it, there's this, you know, for, for a show that is aimed at kids, this show is very frank about death in the way you want Gundam to be, I think. And throughout that whole thing, you know, Keo is trying to go save her because it's like, to him, she's our ally. That's, yeah. you can't like reconcile these things. And people on the ship keep telling him like, even if we save her kid, they're going to execute her. And it's such a stark thing. And I think one of the most disturbing moments is all of it is when she dies, Flit, you know, Keo comes back to the ship and there's this moment where he's standing kind of at the like, by the window looking out and Flit, Grandpa Flit comes in and tries to comfort him. And what he says is, Keo, even if she had come back, we would have executed her. Uh -huh. And it's like, what the hell is wrong with you, Grandpa? I, Keo doesn't say that, but there's this feeling of, like, Flit is so far fucking gone that he, like, why couldn't he have said, like, yeah, maybe, you know, I am Flit Asano. Maybe I could have done something for her. Like, that doesn't even enter his head, you know? Yeah, because as, she, as soon as she, like, is a traitor, he's like, oh, she's a vegan. Like, she's yeah. one of them. Like, we gotta, like, it's like, I mean, I'm eventually gonna kill all of them anyways. We might as well kill her now, right? Like, get this part yeah. over with. Like, yeah, he's his mindset is so set in stone, and he's just can't understand at all Keo's uh, feelings and perspective. Yeah, it's a really striking scene. 
I also really love the moment there with Shanalua where once she flees um, because she's like going to be found out and all that stuff and she leaves in the middle of that battle. Um, one of like the rare times, it's been a long time since we had the classic, someone steals a mobile suit from the bay of the ship. Everyone's like, who's in that mobile suit? Hey, someone shut down the store. What's going on the, the, the ship? Someone, what's going on? And then someone just launches the mobile suit. You're like, are there, do they not like have a magna lock? Are there not like keys to these things you could put in a locker somewhere? Like, man, these mobile suits are sure, sure easy to steal. It made me very nostalgic when I, when we got one of those, because you just don't get them as much in, in these days. That's, um, you know, what I want someday is like the next big Gundam show. I want it to start very kind of classic opening with a boy, you know, getting in the Gundam to save the day. And then I want him to like go to turn it on and it'd be like inner password. And then yeah. be like, oh, fuck. And like just there'd be some basic protection. And then like the Gundam blows up and it's a one episode thing and there's just no story. I think we yeah. need the, the OVA where they do that version of it. Yeah, where they're just like, someone's just like, I'm just fed up of all these fucking children stealing our goddamn mobile seats. It used to happen every episode. <laughs> Um, but yeah, but Shanaloo, she, she steals the mobile suit, she leaves the ship, and then you have this scene just from her perspective as she's in the middle of this battle, and everyone is just trying to kill her, right? The Vegan mobile suits are trying to shoot her, the Earth Federation mobile suits are trying to shoot her, and it's, it's a, the moment that I feel like you just didn't, don't get much in Gundam Age, where you're like, totally removed from the protagonist's POV, and that just sense of like, sheer desperation and tragedy, because I think that's where it like, as a viewer, it sinks in, where there's nowhere for this character to go. Like, there's no way for this story to resolve, like, this story arc to resolve in any way that is not Shanalua dying. Um, and Keo doesn't really know that yet, but you, the viewer, like, it really viscerally puts a point on it that's like, there's nothing else that can happen for her. Like, the choices she has made at this point, just kind of been coerced into making, have led her to a point where she cannot possibly escape this battle alive because there's nowhere for her to go, even if she escaped. Um, yeah. Yeah. And that's in the midst of sort of the biggest action set piece of the entire Earth arc here, mm -hmm. which is where Zayhart is trying mm -hmm. to blow up the basically the, the Jabro equivalent. Um, and they have this bomb that they've like planted in all of the different mobile suits down there. Um, and But Azel Kant has very oddly told them to give him half an hour, um, yeah. which Zayhart does, even though he knows it's very bad military strategy because inevitably uh, Keo and friends disable all of them. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a memorable little section, especially because of the Shauna Lewis stuff. But I think some of the overall action choreography around there, as we say, this show generally bats above average on its action stuff. Some of it's yeah. not great, but, but overall it's pretty good. Yeah. And I think this sequence is very strong and I think it's, I just like, I think it's very successful at like echoing a lot of like different pieces of Tomino Gundam in this way that, that, you yeah. know, you know, obviously is like you know, a hardcore Gundam fan. It's just very fun because it's not, it's not this like kind of cloying nostalgia pull or anything. It's a very smart, we're taking these bits and pieces from victory and different areas of mobile suit Gundam. Cause even that whole thing of like the bombs in the mobile suits and all that just feels like that's like, you know, I mean, that's, they don't have actual bombs in the, like, like turning the mobile suits into bombs in the Jabiro stuff in mobile suit Gundam, but they do the whole thing where Shark goes in and tries to blow up the GMs and stuff like yeah. that. Um, so, so they're, they're echoing a lot of those plot dynamics in a way that I thought was was really fun. It's a very after war Gundam X kind of sensation of uh -huh. taking some of these like Tomino archetypes and playing with them in a very smart way, not like the Gundam Wing will have a guy with a cool voice put on a mask and you know, then he's Char now, right? Yes. <laughs> which um, which to be fair, Gundam Age does Zayhart is a Shar clone as well, I guess, but Zayhart is like such a fulsome character within his uh -huh. own right that like 
it's a fun like little extra it's not the point of the character right yeah no they're not trying to they're not doing a gundam wing where they're like we just have to make this character basically just char and do the entire char storyline they're they're doing the like this the way that tomino used the shark clone thing where he's like yeah just put a mask on this fucker um right, it's exactly. like and that'll satisfy the fan base um and then we just get to do make our own character with him yes absolutely um okay so we have the shanalua stuff then we get into space should we talk about what happened to Kyo's dad Yes, so this is where we get a thing that, like, I had to be very careful not to try to hint at at all because I knew you would be so excited when this happened. Uh, because yes, at the very beginning of this arc, you find out that Asimu uh, has been missing, um, basically since the day that Kyo was born, um, and that you have this one scene where you have um, like this middle point of Asimu. He's not Captain Ash. He's not an adult yet. Um, he's also not a little kid, and he's still voiced by Egaji Takia. There, I think it's like interesting what they do with the voice actors here and, and how they kind of handle this like baton pass between the two actors that play the character very elegantly um so you have that scene and then you find out that Asumu never came back um and now we're out in this space and and they just did the thing i love here they don't try to play coy with this at all it's just immediately this is Asumu, right a yes. pirate ship shows up there's a dude with blonde hair there um, and you get a scene with him that basically, like, directly intimates that he is um, Asimu. Like, you get from the audience, from his perspective, that this is who this guy is. And then very soon in the episode, um, the rest of the clue crew figures it out. Flit senses it. They get a message from him. Um, and this is Captain Ash, also known as Asimu Asano, who is the leader of the Basidian Space Pirates. And they are on a big fuck-off spaceship that kind of looks like a naval ship. Um, that also has a big skull and crossbones on it. And uh, Asamu has uh, revamped the Gundam Age 2 into the Gundam Age 2 Dark Hound, which is basically their crossbone Gundam sort of love letter because it's the Gundam Age 2, but it's all black and it's got a skull and crossbones on it and fucking hooks and it's got a big drill and it's got a fucking Gundam eye patch and it's just a sick fucking pirate Gundam because pirate Gundams are cool. This was the point where I just officially lost any ability to empathize with people who don't like Gundam Age. Where I look <laughs> at this and I go, okay, I can't understand it. At one point, you know, there's some of the, like, the level 5 designs are a little off. The, you know, the Vegan mobile suits I've come to like, but they are a little off putting at first. They're very different for Gundam. You know, it is a little more child-oriented. The first arc is a little rough. Like, okay, maybe people didn't make it all the way through to see the big shift over when it be... No. This show does a full-blown crossbone Gundam homage. It is the most crossbone Gundam we've had in Gundam anime. It does it fucking beautifully. It takes Asumu, the coolest character, and makes him a fucking pirate for you. What more do you want? How else could this show make you try to love it? Like, that is just mean that you would look this gift horse in the mouth and then just walk away. What the fuck is wrong with you if you don't like Gundam Age? That's my reaction to seeing Pirate Captain Ash and absolutely the best mobile suit on this fucking show. The Dark Hound is incredible. And, like, all the action stuff they're able to do with it is so cool and just makes me salivate over the concept of them one day doing Crossbone Gundam in anime. Please, God, because if they could do it this well with just the one Dark Hound in Gundam Age and all the cool stuff they do with the hooks and the various ways it moves... Oh my god, we need a Crossbone Gundam OVA. Please, please do that one day. But for now, we have Gundam Age, and it's it's enough for me for now. It is damn good. How can you not love this show? Come on! 
Yeah, so so I I you know I love Pirate Gundam. I'm not like you know it's the the Dark Hound is not my favorite Molesy on the show. Um, I, I like it a lot, but you're definitely like I I I have known since we started doing this podcast. It's like eventually <laughs> we're gonna get to Gundam Age, and Jonathan's gonna lose his shit over the Pirate Gundams um, in Gundam Age um, because yeah, it's it's so cool. It's such just like a savvy thing to do. They they very much um, his so the whole design and what they do is a callback to a very classic manga series, the Space Captain Harlock, um, which is like a whole space pirate show. Um, and they very much kind of like design adult Asamu to sort of look like that. And it's, and it's, yeah, I, I love how quickly they get to it. I love that they're not, they don't tease it out or anything. They're not no, trying to pretend yeah. that the character is not Asamu. They're, they're, there's such an efficiency to how they're handling it. They're like, we're, we're doing our first arc on Earth, then we're getting into space, and then you're getting Asamu right away. Um, because if they tried to sort of tease it out or sort of do you know play a longer game on that reveal, uh, they wouldn't have had any time to do anything with it. So I love the efficiency of just like, no, fuck it, he's right here, he's a pirate. Um, and, <laughs> and, yeah, and, and they don't even, like, give you all the reasoning yet about why, like, what has happened, why he's abandoned his kind of family... Like, like, how did he get into this whole thing? Uh, but you as an audience, even if they don't tell you, you know, it's fucking Asamu. He probably had a really good reason, and he's probably doing the right thing. Exactly. Um, but I just, I want to go back to this. Like, don't take it for granted. He's a fucking pirate, and they just say that over and over again. They yes. use the word Kaizoku. Like, they, he just will say, like, I'm a pirate now, just, like, unblinking. The show stares you in the eye and goes, yeah, he's a space pirate, and they don't fucking blink. And that is a, that is what feels like, honestly, most Crossbone Gundam about it, which is, like, Crossbone Gundam is so unapologetic about we are just doing pirates in space. I mean, Crossbone Gundam goes further. You've got fucking Parrot Haro on the captain's yes. shoulder. The ship has, like, full sails and everything. They go with more of, as you say, kind of like a submarine or, like, naval, like, vessel kind of thing. Like a Greyhound sort of look for the ship that they have. Um, the, the battle carrier Greyhound kind of thing, right? Um, and it, I love all of that. But I also just love that Asamu went a little loopy out in space. Uh -huh. He went a little crazy. Not full crazy. He's still got most of his faculties, but he's a little crazy. He sits in a fucking pirate ship with a skull on his, like, fucking throne in the pirate uh -huh. room. He goes around calling himself a space pirate. He's got a whole organization name. Um, he talks about treasure all the fucking time. <laughs> That's my that's my favorite thing is he's talking about buried treasure and like when he sees his son is like you're the real treasure out here in space and he's got like is my one disappointment like big disappointment with Gundam Age is is and we'll talk about this more with the fourth arc is I kind of wish like once Asamu had given them the res rev revelation about the ExaDB that had had gone in kind of a unicorn Gundam direction and been sort of a treasure hunt sort of thing going and looking for the ExaDB that that's like such a great direction that they don't mm -hmm. do but even that he's just like all of it he just like is so committed to the pirate aesthetic and it's just like I guess it's how he keeps himself entertained on this long voyage away from his family out in space. And I love that he just he went a little loopy, and it's fucking great. Yeah, and I love his crew on his ship. Um, yes. Like, because you have like the guy who's like his like secondhand guy or something, who's this very good big beard, like fucking like he you know looks like fucking Bluto from Popeye, um, <laughs> just with like yes, a, a gray beard basically. Uh, but then everyone else on the ship, it's just this, like, great sort of, like, 
they don't they're not really characters they don't have much in the way of dialogue or anything but they have these very eccentric designs that it looks like you are looking at the cast from a different gundam show um that is like the pirate gundam show you have stumbled into and then on that show they would all be like you know crew level characters that you'd have that level of familiarity you, you have with like any of the people who are in the background of the crew of like the white base or any of the other uh ships in in a gundam series and i just love that they're all these like weirdos like they just all all their character designs stand out because they're not in military uniforms or anything so they all have to look like very like distinct individuals that don't have that um sort of uniform appearance you can get from the crew of just random battle cruisers in a gundam show and so the the full commitment the the fact that they sit in super dark red lighting on their ship all the time <laughs> is great um yeah it's it's a it's a full theatrical thing he understands that part of being a pirate is you've got to just commit to it because you know it's it's the the part of the act is part of what makes you intimidating and effective as, as a pirate. If you don't paint a giant skull and crossbones on your ship, you're not going to intimidate anybody to give them your their booty. <laughs> it's so good. I just Sean, if you had because I did I did know the story detail that Asamu would disappear because um, I had whatever I'd seen like Kyo something I had seen about him being more raised by his grandpa. Mm -hmm. um, but I did not know the pirate thing until it happened. And if you had put a gun to my head at the end of last week's episode, Sean, and said, okay, Asamu disappears, what happens to him? I, you would have shot me before I got to. Uh, he becomes a pirate, and they basically do their version of Crossbone Gundam. Um, and I am so happy. I'm so joyous. I love that even other Gundam shows know that Crossbone Gundam should have an anime. It's great. Yes. Yeah, and we just to address the question before we get them. Yes, one day we will do a Crossbone Gundam episode. We haven't had the time yet. We've both read the manga. We love it. Um, we should do definitely of the, like the original six volume run. It's it's very special, and we should do an episode on it one day. But for now, we get to talk about Captain Ash and his wonderful uh, pirate crew and and all of the treasure he finds out in space, and it's great. Yes, and and so with Captain Ash, I do want to talk about it. So they 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 sort of do a, a changeover with the voice actor for full adult Asimu, um, which I don't know if they really needed to do, because I do think that Egechi Takia, who plays Asimu in arc two, like has the range that he could have nailed it. But if they, but with the decision to recast, they, they pick the perfect person. So they pick Kosuke Todayumi, who if you play Genshin Impact, you'll know as uh, Gaia or Kaya uh, from Genshin Impact. He, I mean, he's in a, like fucking everything. Like you'll definitely recognize the voice, but it's such perfect casting because like he just sounds like Eguchi Takia only like 20 years older like they right. have such a similar quality to voice um that it's, it's it's such a smooth transition that like I think you could very easily convince people that it's just the same actor because the quality of the voice is so similar the way they play the character is is similar I mean obviously it's a character who is older but it feels like it's the same like idea behind how you you play Asamu and kind of what the character is in forming both of them. Um, I think it's just one of the most smooth transitions between two voice actors playing the character I've, I've honestly ever seen. I didn't notice, uh, and I didn't look it up, and I didn't really notice until I went to watch the OVA that we'll talk about later in Memory of Eden, and then you have young Asamu again, and I went, that's a different voice, isn't it? And and that was when I finally noticed it was like flipping back and forth. Um, but yeah, I didn't notice it in the moment, and it is a, it's a really good performance. 
Yeah, it's just like I was very surprised because in my memory, it was just the same actor playing the whole way through. And then when I heard the voice, I think it was like the Genshin Impact connection that it made me. I immediately pegged on like, wait, that's not the that's not Agushi Taki. That's 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 Gaia from fucking Genshin. And I was like, this is so smooth. What a good, like, elegant way to to sort of transition that role between those two actors. I think particularly. I'm guessing that they probably put a lot of energy into that one little scene you have where Eguchitakia plays an older Asamu before he leaves to go on that mission to like try to like make a vocal bridge between these two versions of the character. And does that's just a really well done kind of production uh, choice they make there. Absolutely. So then, obviously, the the ending of the third arc um is well actually before we go on to the ending of the third arc let's just talk about it here why Asamu leaves and like the whole backstory yes. of why he becomes a pirate and all of that um is obviously we have he encounters the exit db i do i i never it never quite sat right with me all of the exposition behind why Asamu like left and became a pirate like i don't know if they ever gave me the full explanation where i felt like it totally mm-hmm. made sense to me because what it is, is while he found the ExaDB, it's really that he he was, like, saved by these pirates and then decided that the way he would try to keep the peace in the war is that with the pirates, he would go around and try to keep a rough balance of power so that there could be sort of this long stalemate. And I kind of expected, like, for several episodes there, the revelation to be that he'd been looking for the ExaDB all these years. And they that's not what they do. And I... I don't know. It, it's not a bad mark on the show for me or anything. I just don't know if it like fully satisfied me. Yeah, I think I do think that there's should there needs to be something in there. I think to better justify that he has like abandoned his infant son and his his young yes. wife, um, because it is it is like it's it's not enough. But I do think the the implication I think is that the reason why you have had this long peacetime in between in within this gap is partially because he has been out there with the space pirates managing that and that's like one of the reasons why Keo has been able to like live this like relatively peaceful childhood is because the war has not managed to escalate for such a long time because he's tra- he's been out there keeping the balance like i think that's what the show is trying to imply um but yeah it's it's i think the pro- part of the problem is that that's like there are like two or three different spaces where they give you exposition dumps that kind of about that gap with Asamu and I don't think any of them are quite enough and they're far enough away from each other that they don't build on each other effectively um that I think is one of the areas where um like I said at like the beginning of this full discussion like I think one of the issues with Gundam Age in this stretch is it has a little bit more than it can meaningfully chew through because it has so much stuff it's dealing with now three full protagonists it has to execute on. I think this is one of the areas where like some corners kind of get cut to try to justify where the show is going. Yeah, I agree. And I think the explanation you just gave is sort of how I had like talked through it to myself. And I think if you asked the creators of the show, that's probably what they intended and like wrote. I just, as you say, I don't think it fully comes through. I think we needed like a good flashback somewhere that like had a montage or something mm-hmm. to show like, Kyo growing up and Asamu doing the pirate shit just to fully justify for us that, like, this was not him selfishly going off and playing pirate, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Although there is a, there is one scene I really love here where it's in the it's in the, the first episode of arc four, so I think that's episode 40, where you have Asamu and Kyo sort of talking for the first time, like, in person, out of mobile suits, and... and 
I love how Keo reacts to seeing his dad again, where he is primarily happy, or not just seeing his dad again, seeing his dad for the first time, basically, yeah. right? He is primarily happy, and then he has this disappointment, but it's not anger. Like, Keo is mostly just like, like, why weren't you around? Like, this makes me very sad. And Asamu, like, tries something like, I had my reasons, but, like, anything I tell you won't be good enough, basically. And, and Keo has this line that I found just very simple but powerful where he says, like, well, whatever the reason, I just, I wish you could have come and seen us. And then they kind of, like, have this little hug. And I found that very powerful. I thought that was, like, a real sense of, like, how well the show knows its characters, that that mm -hmm. felt very true to how Keo would react to that and how Asamu, like, Asamu doesn't fully try to justify himself because he's, like, he knows Keo's pain matters more than his in that moment, right? Yeah. Definitely, yeah. I really love that moment. And it's and that's where, like, you know, I think Gundam Age, while it can't like do everything that it needs to do to do like to like perfectly execute on its ideas, it's it's the fact that it commits to moments like that and identifies that like that interaction is much more important to nail than it is to give you like the fully satisfying backstory that like shores up every kind of hole about why Asamud has not gone home. Um, it's more important to pay off, like, the emotional bond between those two characters than committing a lot of, like, time to something they don't have enough time to commit to um, to give you, like, the fully detailed back, uh, backstory and that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So then let's talk about the end of this third arc, which is where Keo uh, gets kidnapped in the in the Gundam. Um, and he winds up on Vagan and meeting Ezelkant and all of this stuff. And it is definitely, I think... I think, like, this and the final episodes of the show, are, I think, are probably the strongest episodes of the whole series. I think there's some really great stuff here. Yeah, like I said, it's it, it's this thing where, in my memory, this was, like, a bigger stretch of the show because it, it's, like, I mean, so much happens in the space of, like, two to three episodes here um, where, yeah, you end up on at Second Moon, which is the vegan, like, giant space colony that's uh, in orbiting around Mars. You, this is where you meet Ezelkant for the first time, really, that's not just like a floating hologram man, but as a character. You get all the backstory about Ezelkant's son. You see for the first time the effect that the Mars rays has on people, which I do love that, like, ultimately a huge part of the Gundam Age plot comes down to this very, like, Silver Age comic book ass. They're just... <laughs> Cosmic rays, you know, it's the same thing that gave the Fantastic Four superpowers. Um, if the Fantastic Four were on Mars, they would have been hit by the Mars rays. Some, so there's just something weird on Mars that makes them Mars rays that kills people. Um, but you, you know, you see the sickness um, that has is killing so many of the Martians. And then the key is then Keo um, goes and he makes friends with with a young Martian boy and a little Martian girl, and and you have. Like one of Gundam Age's like most effective tools, which is the flashback or not the flashback, the montage that takes place over the course of like a month or something of time. Um, it's very much like designed to be, I think, a mirror of the flit uh, montage with uh, Yudin and where you kind of really establish their relationship. Um, but you just get this real vivid sense of what life on Mars is like, what the Vegans have had to deal with. And then I think in many ways, most importantly, like, who is Ezelkant and, like, why is this war happening and where does this all come from? And the fact that they're able to move through all that in what is basically two episodes of a TV show and, and then also have Keo escape from that situation within that span, like, that's pretty fucking crazy. Like, that's a, that's a like, original Mobile Suit Gundam level of, like, um, plot efficiency and, like, narrative construction. They're able to do so much in such a small amount of time. 
while still having it breathe and like yes. fully work and like absolutely i i agree 100 percent azel kant here really surprised me because i totally expected the twist to with him to be that he is like and i guess it is true that the twist is that he's not fully just trying to help the vegans but I expected it to be much more callous, that like this entire thing was like a very selfish plan from him, using the Vagans, using humanity to advance some larger goal, kind of like Durandal in Seed Destiny or something, right? Mm -hmm. That like this was all sort of a lie because we just hadn't seen him. And ultimately, he's actually a very earnest person who knows much of what he is doing is wrong and has just been so sort of ensconced in grief that this is the conclusion he's come to as the only way he can see a world without that grief. And I think doing that through Keo's eyes also allows you to see all of that so much more strongly than you would if it were Flit confronting him or Asamu confronting him. And ultimately he, like, like you know, Gundam Age does not have a lot of narrative surprises to me. Maybe pirate thing is something of a narrative surprise. But yeah. like the fact that, and I don't mean that as a bad thing. Stories do not need to surprise you to be good. A good story does not have to be a brand new story that you've never seen before. But Azel Kant was a different kind of antagonist than I expected him to be. And I think that is absolutely for the show's better. Because it really helps set up for the final episodes that, like, the battles that matter in Gundam Age are not between mobile suits. There is not one ultimate antagonist that if they shoot and blow up, they will win the war. That is not the kind of show this is. It is much more of a dialogue, and it is a lot more sort of heady and philosophical than that. I, not that the show is heady and philosophical, but like the ultimate conflict, I think, is much more internal mm -hmm. and emotional. And I think Ezelkant being this kind of villain, and that the ending of the show is him and Keo talking and him admitting Keo was right... Um, is something that makes this show so special. Yeah, and I think it is really effective what they do with Esselkan here because they do a good job of, I think, drawing a good mirror between Flit and Esselkan, right? As these two old men whose lives have been defined by grief and they have taken that grief and they are hiding from it and, like, using it as a way to lash out against the world... And, like, under this, like, guise of it's, like, for the best of everybody, right? So Flit lost his mother, and then, you know, Yudin and all the other characters we've seen creating that grief that he has then used to um, lash out with this justification of if I just kill all the vegans, the world will be perfect. Like, if we just exterminate all those motherfuckers, it would just be great we'd be living in, like, a paradise. I mean, it's basically, he doesn't use the words Eden but he's trying to drive towards his vision of a similar thing of like, Earth will be a paradise and the Earth sphere will be a paradise if we just got rid of these damn fucking Martians. Um, and Ezlikon's whole thing is he lost his son from sickness at a young, when his son was like very young, was Kia's age. And that grief is something he used in, to fuel this whole war where his motivation of this lashing out against the senselessness that these all these people on mars are dying like animals right his obsession that that he wants to build eden which is a place where people can be people which is kind of a phrase they start repeating a lot in this uh section which um then uh at the in the climax Asimu very much turns on zayhart but this this sense of that the people on mars are dying these deaths that they shouldn't have to because the Earth Federation tried this whole plan to colonize Mars and it fucked up and then they just tried to bury it, right? And and, they, and the Earth Federation just pretends that it never happened, that they don't exist, and they buried that information successfully. Um, and so Ezlikant's 
taking that sense of like we have been left here to die what like dogs and he's using that with his whole like now like you find out his ubermatch plan right he wants to create a race of humans that will like transcend war that will transcend these tragedies that there won't be grief anymore because we will create a superior breed of human that won't make the mistakes that we have been making all along and that that will be a world where humans can live like humans and that's what he's saying but i think the most powerful thing is that you know the whole time with the way that they characterize him his relationship with keo everything with his wife who's also a, i think a really like kind of vivid character that's present here um is that all he's doing is grieving for his child and he can't like sort of face that right that he's just so deeply running away from the fact that he's sad about his losing his son and he can't face up to that right that, that he's he can't incorporate or deal with that grief in any way and so how he deals with it is in this crazy fucking plan he's trying to put together to like save humanity from his perspective and you know you say that the show sort of sets him and grandpa flit up as sort of like mirrors of each other and i think part of that is that the show never lets you forget down the home stretch that what flit wants to do is every fucking inch as monstrous as what we're seeing at yes. as can't plan like because it's not just like that one time at the end of arc two where flit says i want to exterminate all of them he doubles down he says uh -huh. over and over in the third and fourth arc that like no i don't want to defeat them i don't want a treaty i don't want any of that i want to kill every single one of them he wants to do a genocide right yes and Ezelkant wants to do this like big eugenics project and they are both like monstrous horrible things and so this is what i mean by the show ultimately it's not like like that conflict cannot like literally by definition cannot be resolved by one of them beating the other right uh -huh. because what they both want to do is monstrous there is no good ending between the two of them so it is much more about ideas clashing than people you know like i, I had a conversation with someone on twitter last night about like some people are disappointed in age because like oh why does zayhart have to die in the penultimate episode and then like you don't have a big conflict it's like because zayhart actually isn't relevant to that conflict yeah like zayhart has to die on this term because he's part of like a slightly different story the actual ending is not them beating one antagonist the actual ending is like resolving these ideas and the ending being that flit ultimately backs down from his idea and then Ezelkant is able to admit to keo that his idea was wrong and Keo is the boy in the middle who, like, got them both to agree to this. That's what the show is building towards. That's the conflict. And when I say this show has clarity that makes me plenty happy to overlook any little moments of messiness, that's what I mean. That's real narrative clarity. Yeah, and I think it's, it's one of the reasons also I think we keep on calling the show so smart is that what it's doing here with this story is it is i think very accessible to a younger audience because it's not about like the political nature of war it's about right. the emotional nature of the people who wage war in this show right so it's so much about like the internal emotional reasoning of these characters um and so it makes that accessible in a way that like if it was about trade tariffs or something like that and like the economic reasons why war comes about that would not be particularly accessible to an eight-year-old right uh but yeah like this is like gundam double o is an example of like that's a that's a politics heavy like show about those ideas and this is going for a different kind of thing and i think gundam double o is the better show between the two of these but i don't think gundam age like suffers by comparison it's going for something different right yeah and i think the thing also that then works really well for it is that while that thing is 
it, the way it's looking at war is one is through a lens that is more accessible to a younger audience, but it's not sacrificing character complexity to do that. And that's exactly. why I think the show still works for audiences of all ages, right? Like, like why we both can watch it and really appreciate it and why it's not just like a, a dumb show you put on for kids to that things explode and they can enjoy it, but not, you don't, you're not going to sit there and be entertained by it is that I think the like emotional texture of Ezlecott and then especially Flick, cause you've been with him the whole time, but even Ezlecott, it's such a rich characterization. And, and when you have that moment, um, like after Keo is leaving Mars and then he and Ezlecott fight in their Gundams and Ezlecott is like so insistent on Keo not leaving. And then you get this one big emotional burst from him where you know you've had these flashbacks about his son and his son saying if i'm reborn i want to be reborn on earth and i want to be with you and then the son dies right and that's the memory that ezra is left with that gives him this idea it's like we have to go to earth because you know he's like i need to save humanity the reason why he wants to go to earth is he wants to see his son even though obviously he logically knows that that's not a thing that's ever going to happen but that's actually why he wants to settle on earth is because this is he misses his son and he's so sad and so when he's fighting Keo and Keo's trying to leave and he's like, why are you trying to leave? Like, why don't you understand? And then he says, if you really are my son reborn, why can't you understand what I'm trying to do? And like, that's the one time that Ezlecon is like honest, right? That you, you break through those cracks that it's like, it's not about any of that shit. Like the reason why he doesn't want Keo to leave is that he sees his son in Keo, right? It's not about executing the big plan. It's not really about the Eden shit. It's all Ezekant trying to justify things to himself. And I think those, the way that Keo is able to poke those cracks in Ezekant, um gives you such a rich sense of like the interiority of this character that it's also very similar to the way that he pokes holes in Flit, right? That whenever Flit does his whole, we need to exterminate all the vegans, and then Keo walks the corner and he sees Keo. Flit always has this reaction that is like so much like a deer in the headlights where he realizes deep down he understands that what he's saying is wrong because he sees it reflected in this child that he loves and cares about and that allows and that pokes that hole in all of his bullshit justification because really all that Flit wants is to be happy with his family and for his the people he cares about to be safe. Um, but the way he can only express that is through hatred. The only way that Ezlecant can express his grief about his son is through executing this plan to try to reunite with his son on Earth in some kind of spiritual sense. Yes, absolutely. Um, and it's, you know, this is what I said last time about the sort of level five of it all. There are kind of two kinds of stories for kids. There's the one mm -hmm. that talk down and pander and just put out shit because they think anyone will watch it. And then I think there are the storytellers who are very invested in the idea of telling meaningful stories to kids in a meaningful way, you know? And there's all sorts of those throughout history, you know, like like Jim Henson and the Muppets or something, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I think Level 5 is very clearly like, the reason why you would run a company like Level 5 is you are invested in that idea, right? That yeah. you can like tell stories and entertain kids in a meaningful way that they will get something out of. Studio Ghibli, I don't know why I didn't say that. Hayao Miyazaki is like the patron saint of that idea, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and I think, you know, like that's, that's the level five touch here. And like, it's like, you can really feel like, oh, okay, this is like, this is Gundam age cracking something Gundam has never been able to do, which is actually aim a show at children. Right. Uh -huh. Um, and it's like, it's because this is kind of like what this group of storytellers does, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. So that man, like all that stuff with that's a con, it's just so good. Like it's, it's so it's, good. 
it, because as you say, the Gundam Age is not a show, particularly if you're an, like an older viewer, like is not going to like pull a bunch of really surprising twists. But I think the thing that like is surprising about this back half of the show is the elegance with which they pull off some of this like characterization um, that feels yes. like it's just so deft. Um, I also think the stuff on Mars, uh, on uh, Second Moon, where he's with Dean and Lou, the boy mm -hmm. and girl, um, is really great. It's, again, it's not like something we've never seen in Gundam before, but I think it's a very good version of it. And I think Keo is such a sweet character. And I think the, the things I like about him as a character come through so strongly here. They have that beautiful montage, as you say, with the insert song that's great. There's just a lot of good moments in it. And I think the overall build to they're going to take Lou out for a day because uh, uh, Keo has gotten her this medicine from Azelkant. Um, which, boy, that's a striking moment when he gives uh -huh. the Gundam info. Azelkant gives him the medicine, and then he says, Arigato, Azelkant-san. And yeah. calls him, like, thank you, Mr. Azelkant. Just, like, it's not disrespectful. It's actually very respectful, but not treating him as a lord or a king, but as someone who did something nice for him, and how much that pierces Azelkant. When you talk yeah. about, like, vibrant characters, like, that's part of it. But then you have that whole day where they take Lou out, and it's beautiful. And there's such striking visual stuff there. Um, the moment when they like get to the top of like the slums where they live, and they look out over the colony, um, it's lovely. There's a really striking moment at the end of that episode where Keo has Lou's sketchbook, and she mm -hmm. has all these sketches in it. Oh, and as God. he's flying, as he's flying away from the colony, you have this moment where you'll go from the sketch. And it'll cut to a fully colored, like, animated version of it. And basically what it looks like to me is, like, anime storyboards going to full finished animation. But they do it with Lou's voiceover and going from, like, the dream to reality. And now, of course, those dreams will only ever be dreams because she's dead. It's beautiful stuff. Really well done. And striking as a production and a directorial choice, too, I think. Yeah, that whole sequence where, I mean, it's it's just a real kick in the emotional nuts of the, of, <laughs> like... Lou, you know, you know that she's going to die. She, you know, has been affected by the Mars rays. Um, and you know that that's going to happen. And she has this diary and it's just so effectively set up where she writes about that that date with Keo, right? That's like, I want to go show you around the city. And, but she like writes it as like from the past tense. Like I walked around the city with, with Keo and we went to my favorite part, which is at the top of this junk pile. And we looked out over the whole colony. And it's like the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. And we held hands, right? And then after she dies, Dean gives Keo the diary. And she had written out like weeks and months of them being together and like being friends in this like future that she didn't get to, ha to have it's like man that that whole sequence just a very striking very powerful um because because i think it just drives home so much the tragedy of what is happening in this place where there are all these people dying for no good reason and they're they're children right like it's these people who are living lives like where like the slimmest hope is like the greatest thing that they can have, right? This like this little vision she has of having a normal life um, that she can't really have because of this disease and, you know, because the, the disease impairs her so much and then also eventually it takes her life. Um, and having that illustrated literally for you through this whole diary she makes of, of the life that she didn't get to live, um, like that's just such a powerful motivator moving into that last arc um, with Keo, where you, I think, as a viewer, are 100% on the same page with him now. Where it's like, you cannot possibly look at the Vegans as being enemies. 
when you've had that experience and you've seen what it is that they are fighting for. And that, especially from, I think, Keo's perspective, like their motivation is way starker and more powerful than the Earth motivation, which is very passive and very defensive because they're just trying to defend Earth, right? They just don't want the Vagans to end up on Earth. Um, and that's it. Uh, whereas the Vagans are like, we need to survive. We are dying here. Um, like our children are dying. We need to get out of here. And so Keo's decision from that point forward to not kill anybody and to just disable mobile suits, like I think that whole moment with Lou just so epitomizes that feeling of we cannot see these people as enemies because they are suffering tragedies equal to, if not greater than the tragedies that we on Earth are suffering. And, and you experience that so um, concisely. Yeah, you have just immense buy-in from that. Mm -hmm. Like, be, because they they don't try to, like, show you every factor of this society. They focus in on Dean and Lou and this one family as, like, the synecdoche for there's a million of these, right? Like, all mm -hmm. the pain that Keo felt there, there are a million other people going through that. And it is what this society... Like, and you also think of, like, what the psychic scars of that would be on a society, right? Mm -hmm. Is very horrifying to think about, right? Um, and so, of course, any, like... Anything less than I will never kill one of these people again would be a weird reaction to that. You know, it's just yeah. it would be impossible to hate the society as a whole for something the military might do to you afterwards, you know? Yeah. And I also love this that whole sequence on on Mars for the um the the juxtaposition. The show doesn't point this out very directly, but I think there is a very clear juxtaposition between Ezelkant and the normal people living on Mars, right? And this, like, I think before you find out Ezelkant's whole plan, that, like, it's not about saving the Vegans, it's this much bigger, higher, weird, abstract idea about creating a superior human race. And I think they set that up very clearly by, like, if Ezelkant really cared about the people on Mars, he could help them out a whole lot more than what he's doing. Because you have these, like, extensive slums of people living in just abject poverty, um, you see that they're like practically starving, right? Like the food that Lou and Dean has and, and you have um, uh, Keo's like joins them for dinner and they have like a, a like slice of bread basically is what you have for dinner. And then in the next scene, he's in Ezlikan's dining hall and Keo's refusing to eat and it's this like massive feast in front of him. And the sense of like Ezlikan, if he actually cared about these people, there's so much he could do with his tremendous wealth and power that he's not doing. Um, and and again, the show's not like putting a very like fine um, lens on it, but it is, uh, I think it's like very clearly in like the minds of the storytellers that this is part of this characterization as well. That that you are showing very vividly that Ezlikant's motivations are not like humanitarian in any way. Because if they were, there's so much he could do to help the people on Mars that he is just like not doing. It doesn't seem like it would even occur to him to give up his massive castle and the medicine he's using to heal himself that other people are not getting access to and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I think so. So transitioning into the fourth arc, Mm -hmm. uh, I think that first episode, episode 40, is fantastic, where you have Keo kind of going out for the first time in the Age FX, which you learn is called the Age FX 4X Rounder, which is the dumbest and best No, it's, it's better than that. It's the Follow X Rounder. Because follow, it, right, Follow it, X Rounder. It follows your X Rounder abilities. Um, so that's dumb, one of it. those areas where, you know, English to a, a native Japanese speaker, English sounding very cool 
does not mean if we're an English speaker that that same use of English would would sound cool. <laughs> Sometimes there's a good matchup of like what sounds cool to English cool to a Japanese speaker also sounds English cool to an English speaker. The phrase follow X rounder is not one of those things. That is no. one of the lamest collections of English language syllables I have ever heard in my entire fucking life. But you have that. You have a series of flashbacks kind of getting us back up to speed on what's been going on. You get a big chunk of Asamu's backstory here. You get that scene with Asamu and Flit together that we or, and Keo together that we talked about earlier. Very good. I do think the fourth arc is pretty messy after that point yes. for a little bit. I think the the whole like four or five episodes on the moon where they're trying to get the base just kind of sag for me and I feel like it's fairly directionless again I think it snaps into place I think the final episodes are fantastic but I do think there's just a sense of directionlessness there um, at least through that that like what I would roughly call like the Gerard Spriggan arc uh -huh. and then I think after that when you get into like the exit DB stuff and Sid and like Zayhart and like those last four or five are very tight and I think those last three in particular are great but I do think this first stretch it's rough narratively, and you can also just... It's one of the most stark examples in all of Gundam I can see of, like, we are saving budget here so we can uh -huh. spend more money here because the stuff on the moon looks cheap as shit and is the worst action in the series. And then the final three episodes look like they spent a movie budget on them. They look so fucking good, you know? Yeah, I definitely agree. And I think one of the problems is that, the like, I don't think Gundam Age, like, really knows how to reconcile the two, like, ongoing elements it needs to resolve um which is the exit db stuff and just like the conflict with between earth and vegans and i think the problem is i think the, with the gerard spriggan section as i think they end up committing too much energy in the wrong direction i think they yes, need to exactly. spend more time on the exit db stuff and have like some battles between earth and vegan be like montage like or something because you need to have the war progress in a certain way you can't go immediately at the beginning of the arc four to this is the final confrontation there needs to be some other confrontation between earth and the vegans um but but you also don't want it to be here's like a giant battle and exit db's just in the middle like i think it's just kind of like these different narrative pieces they have are kind of hard to fully put together i think they make a little bit the wrong choice there um with how they handle it uh but then once you kind of lock in for that final stretch and i do think like the like convenience at which the exit db stuff is discovered and the like the sid thing kind of coming out of nowhere all of that is like messy but once you've kind of cleared out some of that narrative messiness and things are locked into place then gundam age is like on fire for that last three or four episodes yes i i totally agree with that analysis i think you know the exit db is we haven't talked about it yet i think it's a great concept it's very turn a like yes. is is and we didn't really talk about this last time but the whole backstory of gundam age is very turn a the whole idea that like there was a essentially a universal century in this world like not exactly like we saw it but something like that humanity moved past it roughly with a lot of like sins like the vegan stuff right um and then they put all of their knowledge of warfare into this thing and sent it off into space i love that idea and i do think what i would have liked to see as like the start of this arc was because i think part of it is that keo has this big decision to make and he makes the decision that he's not going to kill anymore. He's going to use the power that he has as an X-Rounder and that the Gundam Age FX will give him as an X-Rounder to just disable mobile suits while fighting. 
but he doesn't do anything bigger, like, structural to, like, make that choice. Yeah. And what I kind of expected was that he was going to fly off and just, like, go looking for the exit DB or something. Or, like, he and Asamu would, like, go on a voyage and, like, maybe Flit is back home waging the war while Asamu and Kyo try to do something to, like, actually change the course of the war. And I think something like that, if you had, like, a five-episode arc at the beginning here and then linked it up with what where they ultimately go, I think you could square that circle. Um, and I just think, as you say, there's kind of like two warring ideas here, or at least plot ideas here, and they wind up going with more of the Vagan Earth conflict. And at that point, it's like, I don't... I don't really need to see more of it. I think Gerard Spriggan, as fucking wonderful as that name is, and mm -hmm. it's an A-plus S-tier Gundam name, she doesn't like do anything more that we have not done on this show yet. There's nothing new thematically introduced here. Um, and again, because the budget just can't... like They are clearly cutting corners so that they have the money later on, and those episodes just don't really play that well either. Yeah, I, I agree. That it's just it, the... Like, the, some of this kind of feels like a vision of if you had had the original 50-episode plan for the original Mobile Suit Gundam, where they're going to be like, here's, like, the three Chaliable episodes. That's kind of what the Dread Fruit Spriggan stuff feels like, where it's like, you know, Mobile Suit Gundam has this one-off episode where Chaliable shows up from Jupiter. He's like, I'm I'm the new type Chaliable. I'm the title of this episode. I'm a cool new type man. And then he just gets fucked up immediately and dies, and, and you move on to something different in the next episode. Um, and that works well for Mobile Suit Gundam, but there's going to be a lot more with that whole thing. And this feels like that, where it's like, well, this is the character that is kind of a throwaway character, really deep in the run of this show, that you end up, like, dedicating basically, like, three episodes around here, kind of. You know, it's, you have, like, the main episode, which is the centerpiece for her, which is the, just the episode titled Gerard Spriggan. But the episode before that one and the episode after that one are heavily about her as well. It's like, that's a lot of time to commit to this one X-Rounder type character that could be anybody, right? Like, it could be, you could use a character we already know, like Fram for this, or Zayhart or something to do something similar and get a little bit of, like, some more of this war or whatever. Or if you want to have a scene that has Flit and Asamu and Kyo team up, which is what they do um, in episode 43 to, to deal with that, there are way more elegant ways to go about that than, than I think the, the path they ultimately took. Yeah, I think outside some of the early rockiness in, in arc one, this is probably the worst little stretch of the show. Mm -hmm. It doesn't derail the show. It's not a fatal flaw, nothing like that. It's just this is probably the messiest thing the show does, at least in this stretch of episodes we're talking about today. Yeah, and then you, you that leads into episode 45, which is Sid the Destroyer, um, which is about the the guardian of the Exodip, which we've conveniently never heard about uh, before this point. Uh, which is the mobile suit that uh, de defeated Asimu and fucked him up so bad um, that you know he had to he was like recovering for months on the pirate ship and Zehart goes and decides to fight it to challenge it so he can master the Gundam. I like every time I try to say this in English, it just sounds like I'm saying Gundam Legolas. So I'm just going to call it the Gundam Legolas because I don't know how <laughs> you're supposed to pronounce it in English. Um, so the Legolas Gundam, um, which he inherited from Zehart, right? And, does and, not have a bow and arrow, sadly. No, it does not. I mean, it's a sick-ass Gundam. We'll we'll save the mobile suit talk for later, but I, I love this fucking design. I it's a good it's so, one. It's so great. Um, but I do think there's a little bit of awkwardness with this episode and where we go later, where it just feels like a little bit out of step with where they take Zayhart, which I think like what they do with Zayhart in the climax is perfect and what you needed to do with the character. But it feels weird to like 
so quickly go from Zayhart triumphant over the Sid and him mastering the Gundam Legolas to him being like going space mad and he's like space Macbeth, um, which is great. And again, is the perfect direction for the character. But I feel like this episode 45 is kind of awkward. Like it doesn't quite do everything that it needs to do with the Zayhart character or with Asamu. Um, and and some of it just feels like it kind of comes a bit out of nowhere with this like magical destroyer in space that is guarding the eggs of EB. I just feel like there's like more that they could flesh out around that concept that feels like our idea of if you had a whole exit db arc here you could do that a lot more elegantly than just kind of shoving all this in one episode before the last battle yeah that's what i meant i think if i i really do think if you split the cast up here a little bit and had keo with asamu for a couple episodes doing something related to the exit db you more fully explored that Zayhart headspace and get him from point a to b and b being space Macbeth, which is mwah, wonderful um that I think you could do a lot of this. And I, I like the idea of Sid the Destroyer. I think it's a cool idea that there's this, like, thing out in space and there's a robot that self-evolves to fight. That's awesome! Yeah. It's, like, it's very Macross in a certain way. Um, and I like it a lot. I think the look of it is cool. This is... This stretch of episodes is, like, one of the... Correct me if I'm wrong. One of the first times we have a lot of, like, CGI mobile suits in Gundam. Because mm -hmm. um, I don't... Double O didn't really do it, did it? No. No. So yeah, like like obviously we've had a lot more of that later with stuff like the origin and then Hathaway, um, but it's cool to see it, and I think they're able to do like what I like about how they use CGI in this series is that they use it for mobile suits that you just couldn't do by hand, like the the Sid or a lot of the Vegan stuff they do. There's no way you could hand draw like that idea, and so I think it's cool. I think that the overall action sequence they kind of put together with Sid versus Zayhart and um, um, Asimu awesome. has some has some good beats in it, and I think is good. But yeah, it's it's it feels very fragmentary as an episode on its own. Down to like it ends with like Asamu destroying the Exit DB, but he didn't really, and then it comes back in the end. Like I again, it just feels like get rid of the Gerard Spriggan episodes, extend this out, and we're good to go. All the ideas are here. It's just the execution that's a little off. Yes. But after that point, then you're just like, you know, full steam ahead with the final battle. Um, at Space Fortress Legramis, which is not Space Fortress Abawaku, I swear. It's a different <laughs> Space Fortress, right? Uh, I mean, it's very intentionally, it's the same exact same episode title structure as, as the ending of Gundam. Um, but yeah, so you have our last battle here. Um, and this is where you like really are pulling together like every single thread in Gundam Age. And there's like a lot. So this last four episodes has to resolve... Flit's whole narrative arc from the very beginning of the show, right? It has to do all the savior stuff and deal with him. It has to resolve Asimu's character arc and his relationship with Zayhart. It has to resolve Zayhart. It has to resolve Keo's entire arc on the show. It has to resolve the war in general and Ezelkan's arc. And then all the little side characters along the way, like Fran, who we haven't talked about some of them. Like there's the, I forget what his name is, but there's the other general that's kind of opposed to Zayhart and he's been kind of plotting. Yeah, in the background, you have to resolve all of that. You have the exit DB. You have this, like, mysterious clone boy that Ezlecant has made um, that is, like, for whatever, like, it's just basically Kid Boo. There's just something about, like, the way that he works in the story that feels like, this is the Kid Boo. This is, like, the... All reason is gone out of this. This is, like, war and, like, violence right. incarnate, and we have to fight it. Like, there's... You have multiple side characters on the D.Va who have yes. sort of the end of their arc, including, like, the multiple deaths and things like that that are really great. There's some great character moments with all of that. Yeah. yeah it's so it's, it is a lot on Gundam Age's plate, and it's very much, like... 
I feel like this finale is in like, you know, in that kind of Tomino space with like a Zeta Gundam or something where you get there and you're like, how the fuck are they going to resolve all of this shit in the episode count they have? And then you watch the episodes, you're like, I don't know how they did it, but they fucking did it. Like, I don't think it's like as effective as like the ending to Zeta Gundam. I think there's a little bit of messiness here and there. I think one of like the things that never fully feels right is like Dean's whole role that he has somehow gotten involved in like the military with Vagan and he gets killed like I think him getting killed in this battle and like that confrontation with Keo is important but it's not set up very well so there's some messiness here and there but by and large all the major stuff they do particularly the main character arcs for our three main characters um I just think like Gundam Age absolutely nails basically all those things I just listed out Honestly, four main characters, if you include Zay Hart, because yes. he gets just as much of a focus here, and mm-hmm. his his ending is phenomenal. So, like, yeah, I mean, it's... I remember going into that third... The final, final episode, 49, and we so we would have just seen Zay Hart die, and I was just in my head doing the checklist of everything we have to catch up with. We have to finish Keo's arc, we have to finish Flit's arc, we have to do something with Ezel Kant, because he's still out there, we have to end the war, the Exit DB is still floating out there, and we have Clone Boy, and I was like... How do we do that in 20 minutes? And it's pretty masterful. Like, as you say, I don't think it's at the absolute level of like peak Tomino, end of Gundam, end of Zeta Gundam, something like that. Um, but it's closer than any non Tomino show has a right to be, frankly. Like, uh-huh. it's really good. Like, I have not had this specific feeling with like an AU Gundam because. Something like Double O is just much more sane about how it bases its story. Uh, It's like you don't go into the finale of Double O going, how are they going to wrap this up? It feels pretty like relatively sanely paced. This is very much going for that Tomino style. Everything will be resolved through action in the heat of the moment, you know? And that is a really hard line to walk. And they walk it really beautifully. And and at sometimes just utterly masterfully. Like I think everything they do with with Flit is just, I don't think you could do it better, you know? Yeah. So, yes, it's a, it's a great, great Gundam finale. So where do you want to start kind of breaking down? Because I feel like we just need to kind of pick the different <laughs> narrative threads because there's so much that's going on in these last four episodes. Because all of this stuff, this is like one big battle. It's like basically a massive action scene with a bunch of different phases spread out across these last four episodes. Yeah. Can we just talk about some of the smaller character deaths that we get? Okay. So, you know, like we do get the death of um, Obright uh, here at the end. Oh. and. His death Man. scene is so good. Like, if you look at that scene, it's... I mean, one, it's... As I said, the animation here just gets pretty off the charts. There's some amazing mm-hmm. stuff. And I tweeted out, if you look at my Twitter timeline, I when I finished the show, I did a couple of video, like, videos I, I took from the show. And one of them was Obright's final thing, where he's the one who does the final blow against Fram. Yeah. And he has this thing where he... He's fighting because his mobile suit is nowhere near what Fram is able to do, but he's just so experienced. And there's this one cut where it's Fram like bangs into him. He's clearly like gonna be die of shrapnel at that moment, right? And then he lifts the the arm of the mobile suit, spins the like hand around, and comes back down and like just pulls the like light uh, the light lightsaber kind of thing into her. And it is a incredible piece of animation. It's so good. And then his death is he's looking at like the screen and Keo's face is there saying, you have to live. And he, and, and he tells, or no, sorry. He says to them, like, you guys have to live. And then his like hand falls and just blood streaks down the like window of the mobile suit. And he blows up. Um, holy crap. O'Bright got a good death. He does call out Remy there at the end. He says, I'll finally see you again. Great scene. It's yeah. a small character in the show, but he's great. 
And it's a great scene where, like, you know, because earlier, and I think this is in arc three, right? He's, uh, O'Bright is on the deck with Keo, and he's doing his whole thing where he's cleaning the deck, and he repeats I wanted the to thing talk about that. that yeah. Remy told him about, like, this is where we live, and you treat it like your home. It's like, yeah, you could clean it automatically, but, like, you have to clean it by hand and, like, show it the respect. I think there's something with the, his dying moments, the way that shot works is he... Keo's face comes up on the monitor. He reaches up his hand and presses this bloody hand against where Keo's face is, and he says, you guys have to live. And then Keo's face disappears, and the hand falls, and then behind it is the diva, because what he was looking at wasn't really, really Keo. He was looking at the diva, which was his home, right? Yes. And like, that framing and the direction of that moment, I think, like, really hits really hard for O'Bright, who is, like, not a major, major character. Like, he's been in the background for part two and part three, um, but, you know, I think especially because Remy's death is so memorable in part two, like, I think you're like really, you know, you're looking at O'Bright a lot and remembering him and caring about him and this like saving this special little moment for that character's death. Uh, yeah, it works really well. Honestly, if I had to pick one moment in this entire show as just a tiny little cynic doke of how smart the writing on this show is, it would be O'Bright on the deck talking to Keo, quoting what Remy told him. Mm -hmm. And just like what that scene said, because it's a nice scene when Remy does it, but the way it, it, what it reflects about the show and the generational aspect and the way it uses like the progress of time and, and all of that, that is just, again, that is a kind of moment no other Gundam show could do because it doesn't have this premise of like taking place over a century. Do you know mm -hmm. what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. O'Bright, great character, great death. I also think someone who gets a great death is Sarek, who is one of the, he's like the new wolf in the, in the generation yeah. three team. The I think Holmes he's really... of the battlefield, as he's called at the beginning of part three. And I, I really love Sarek and his whole, like, he's you great. Know, his whole attitude. He's, he's a great character. I love Sarek. He's really good. He has a relationship sort of with the uh, captain in this arc who we haven't talked about yet, but I like, I like Captain Anus. That is her <laughs> name. It is Anus. <laughs> I it's it's A I N U S, but it is just in Japanese. It's just anus. Her name is Captain Anus. What are you laughing at? It's like fucking Uranus. It's a planet. What are we laughing about? Yeah, no, Captain Anus, which is just the funniest name ever. <laughs> um, yes, uh, yeah. So you have, you know, her whole story arc throughout this whole part three and part four of her, you know, starting as this captain who just gets the diva shoved onto her because the military dude is not happy about Flit like throwing his weight around even though Flit's retired from the military. So he's like, oh, let's just give this like green person like just straight out of basically officer school who's never like really served a meaningful day in her life yet. Um, give her command of this entire ship and her going from that to being this great captain. Um, and that whole death of where, you know, she has to make the decision to fire the, the main cannon at the ship that Sarek's uh, mobile suit is like basically stranded on. Um, and she decides to make that call and shoots the cannon and she starts crying and then uh, Flit turns to her and says, I know it's hard, but we need to fight. And then like, he's about to tell her, it's like, but we need to trudge on, blah, 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 and give his whole Flit speech. And she immediately just like cuts him off. And even while she's still like crying and tears are streaming down her face, she continues giving like commands to the rest of the crew. Like that whole sort of slow burn arc of her and the like misfit crew of the, the diva for this third generation, um, I do really like a lot. Uh, I love it. Like, this show shouldn't have time for that. Uh -huh. It shouldn't have time to have... Uh, her and Sarek are, like, very clearly, like, the bone of it, and it's why their climaxes are very tied together. Like, that's the big last moment for both of them. 
But I love that whole Misfit crew. I even, I thought I was going to hate the guy who's like at the computer eating all the time. And I'm like, oh, is this just a funny fat dude? I hate that fucking archetype. But you know what I love about that guy? He eats at his desk all the time and he's good at his job. Yes. I like it. I like, if you're going to do that archetype, I like that they kind of undercut it by like, and he is good at his job and no one makes fun of him for it. Because you know what? If he wants to eat a hot dog while saving the day, he'll eat that fucking hot dog and he will save the fucking day. It's great. Exactly. And, uh... And then, and then Captain Anus herself, I just have to shout out the voice, right? It's very hard to say that name. Um, you know, Sean, but, I just love in recent weeks, we've talked about the French Revolution in the context of The Dark Knight Rises. And we've talked about, like, the Iraq War and the modern problems of, like, of like you know, terrorism and warfare in the Gundam 00 episodes. And now we get to talk about Captain Anus and how funny it is because her name sounds like a butthole. It's great. I mean, it is. It is. You couldn't come up with a more funny sort of, like, sophomoric name for a character than Captain Anus. Like, it just sounds like it should be, like, a straight-to-DVD National Lampoon movie, right? <laughs> National Lampoon's Captain Anus. Um, in the modern era of, you know, the superhero craze, this is, this is like, this is what we need is the straight-to-DVD bargain bin Captain Anus film. Um, but Captain Anus in Gundam Age, spelled E-I-N-U-S, um, is voiced by an actress I really love, Rina Sato, um, she is Yula in Genshin Impact, who has been my main in Genshin Impact for uh, a while now since that character came out. Um, she's also um, the main character in Railgun, a certain scientific Railgun. Um, and then she's also Candy Shop, who's my favorite character in No Known Beauty, which is one of my favorite shows. She's a lady who runs a candy, candy shop and everyone just calls her Candy Shop, basically. Um, but it's a great actress. She's not like an anthropomorphic Candy Shop? No, that would also be very good. Um, but yeah, so she she plays uh, Captain Anus in the show and she does a great job. And like I think that arc is very like striking from her being this very like nervous, inexperienced young captain to being like the most competent person on the bridge. Um, it's just a, it's a very memorable character. It's just, I really do love that in the midst of kind of having to do, like, three Gundam shows in one Gundam show, they actually commit to, like, having three crews and having three captains and doing these different stories. I think, you know, like, I think in the second arc, the second crew comes across the least strongly uh -huh. of any of the three crews. But they're still there and they're still given some attention. And in this third arc, there's there's just a lot of good stuff there. I like the crew. I like Sarek. He gets great moments. His last action beat, like, what winds up killing him is he's fighting that big yellow mobile armor that has like the drill on it uh -huh. and him killing that thing is a phenomenal action beat and then it winds up he gets hit by the ship and then he has to you know he and and captain anus have their final moment together and it's just a it's a it's a great culmination to those characters who add so much color and life to the show around it and also i love that this is not a show that's afraid of killing characters like it's uh -huh. very brutal at the end here and thank god there's no Age destiny where they bring them all back to life um you know because gundam seed did the same thing but i don't remember that gundam seed did it because they brought all those characters back to life yes. um and then they did a whole show where no one could die from nuclear explosions it was a it was a weird choice um but it definitely leaves an impact there and it let it makes this final battle have the weight it needs you know absolutely speaking of characters who die let's talk about zayhart we'll bring awesome in here but I think this will, you know, Zayhart basically gets the penultimate episode. And, like, mm -hmm. I guess what baffled me when I heard from someone yesterday on Twitter that, like, some people don't like that Zayhart is taken out early is, like, Zayhart gets a fucking episode. Like, Zayhart yeah. gets the royal treatment from this show in terms of a, a big, like, final arc. He becomes Space Macbeth. It's phenomenal. It's Shakespearean. It's, 
And then Asamu gets pulled into it and you get a great ending for Asamu's arc because Asamu doesn't quite have a role in that final episode the way Kyo and Flit do. And like, how could he? He's a little removed from it. And I think they're able to bring it all to a close beautifully. I, I think the conclusion to Zayhart's stuff is A-plus material. Yeah, I think in particular, like, this is... I think Zayhart's probably the best example of how strong the characterization is in the show, where that, you know, what I think is very self-consciously a Shakespearean tragedy, like, tragic hero thing they're doing with him, like, down to him having ghostly visions, which is a pretty common trope in Elizabethan tragedies. Um, and... So his whole thing where he's, you know, I mean, he's there from, like, day one, the invasion of Earth for part three, right? So he's been around in this whole section, but he's been very much in the background. He has this sort of uh, subordinate, Fram, who is the younger brother of the Kinjiro Suda character from part two. Dole. Or, sorry, younger sister, yeah, than Dole from part two. And she's, you know, kind of testing him to see, like, are you worthy of kind of carrying on the legacies of all the people who have died under your command. And you see in that early part of part three that, that Zayhart very much is, right? He's that character we know from part two, this very idealistic young man who has this, been given this mission that he is dedicated to bringing about, which is the savior, they're like the survival of his uh, people, bringing them to earth, like executing what he thinks Project Eden is. And, you know, you have that one scene that I think is very defining of his character where, you know, the, there's a mission that happens and, and Keo kills a couple of, of vegan mobile suits on the mission. Um, and then Fran reports the results of that mission to Zehart and Zehart asks her, do you remember the names of the, of the pilots that died in that battle? And she says no. And then he just lists them off off the top of his head. And that, that so much is defining of who Zehart is at his best. This guy who understands that there's going to be sacrifices in this battle, but that he needs to respect and honor them and carry them with him. And where it becomes tragic is then when he learns that Ezlecan's plan is not what he thought it was, that Ezlecan's plan is not about saving the vegan people, but it's this very abstract, ubermanch, superior human race thing that is not at all, I think, what Zehart actually believes in. But Zehart is then faced with this awful, impossible choice of do you abandon Ezelkant's plan, you abandon what Project Eden actually is to continue on the thing that you believed in, like your principles and the principles and the things that the people who served under you who have lost their, gave their lives believed in, or do you continue to follow Ezelkant? Like what is the right path to take? He takes the wrong one, right? He decides to abandon his principles and ideals to continue with like what Ezelkant tells him Project Eden actually is. And he's like, well, this is what we've been doing. We've been fighting for Project Eden. I have to bring it to its conclusion. And that's the point at which he's made, you know, that's his, his Macbethian choice. That's basically the equivalent of Macbeth killing the king, right? Is he has now, he is now killing people not out of what he believes is right, but out of what like he feels he has to do because he no longer has a choice. Right. Um, and so he is he basically almost quotes a line from Macbeth at some point near the finale where he says he's the line from Macbeth is like, I have waited in blood so deep that were I to turn back, I'd have to go through as much as if I were to trudge on, which is like I've killed so many people that to reverse the things I've done would be to do as bad as to just continue on the path I'm trekking on and eventually get killed. Um, and so Zayhart's whole tragic downfall there of him abandoning his ideals um, abandoning what made him special as a character, I mean, special as like a person, 
in the hopes of like maybe somehow this Project Eden thing will work out and that obviously then ultimately leading to Zayhart having to die. Um, it's very sad, but I think it's a very sharp way to characterize the cost of what Ezlecant is doing and the cost of manipulating people and and like waging this very kind of like dishonest war that is not motivated by anything proper or just or like justifiable um and ultimately like the cost of that is the death of someone like Zayhart who is like probably the most noble good character in the entire fucking show yeah and i love that they treat it as tragic i love that they give it the the sort of attention it deserves even though, like, from a purely, like, mercenary plot standpoint, Zayhart's relevance to the final sort of conflict of the show is somewhat minimal because he's a little bit outside of that main ideological debate, you know? Which is why he can't be there for the finale. Like, yeah. from a plot standpoint, you have to get rid of him in the penultimate episode, um, both for just the reasons of, like, that's going to help bring the war to an end and get us to the point we need to be, but also because he's not he's stuck in between these poles that is what the finale is dealing with right but i think you know there are there are several gundam shows where i feel like the the zayhart equivalent the char clone or the ace rival or something like that winds up feeling kind of vestigial at the end and their ending feels a little sort of like i don't know like offhand it's not really important it doesn't feel fully satisfying zayhart feels fully satisfying yes. like they really really give it the attention it deserves and make this character's ending a fulsome part of the thematic tapestry of what Gundam Age is. And it's fantastic. And I think just an all-time great Gundam sequence is him ordering Fram to go get in the line of fire of their big space laser and draw the Gundam in. So he makes, that's that's his like point of, not even, he's already past the point of no return, yeah. but that's like his lock into like, he's going to be the evil that he needs to be to get this done and he knows it's bad. And he tells Fram, I need you to go lure the Gundam into the line of the laser and stay there and we'll destroy the Gundam and the Diva. And he believes this will be the end of the war because he'll get rid of all the most powerful stuff on the field and it will be worth the sacrifice of his, someone he called his beloved subordinate uh, in a previous episode. That's what he, he says, you are my, you know, be not beloved. He says very, he says like, you know, um, Shinsets, they're not. Yeah, not Tai Sets and Abuka. Tai Sets, yeah. Yeah, Tai Sets and Abuka. And it's, it's, uh, it, that's a powerful moment on its own because I think that sums up, that is how he sees people beneath yeah. him, right? That they're very important. And then he's willing to sacrifice her in a very sort of callous way where he's just turning off his emotions and she gets it. Um, and then you have this big battle with Fram. This is also where Obright dies. Um, and Fram and Lael, another person on their team, are there. Um, and luckily, Asamu and everyone are able to plan in time to get out of the way. This is also where you empty out the diva, and we say goodbye to the diva, which is a, a really beautiful moment. This is this is the, definitely the ship I feel like I've had the most relationship to since, like, uh -huh. the Argama or something, right? Yeah. Um, because it just, it, it lived for so long, 70 years as a ship. It's a, it's a very good ship. But really what that sequence is ultimately about is Zayhart just going past a point he can never come back from. Yeah, to, to continue on the Macbeth comparison because again like i think it is very consciously like modeling itself off of that yeah like this this is in Macbeth. he starts by killing the king and then later he ends up killing banquo who is his friend because there's a prophecy that banquo's like children will become kings and so he's afraid that that will then end up coming back and killing him so he has his friend banquo killed 
Um, and he also orders the death of Banquo's son, but the son escapes. And so it's a very similar thing of like, you have now, now what you're doing is like, you are betraying someone who's really close to you um, for like this goal. And even doing that, the goal isn't actually achieved, right? And that's like, in many ways, the most tragic thing of all is that Macbeth, because the son gets away, he doesn't even achieve, he doesn't get the thing that he really wanted and actually most cared about. And the same thing with Zehart, he takes this incredibly extreme step um, and in this sense of desperation where he's like, I just have to kill the Gundams no matter the cost. Um, and he can't even kill the Gundams. But like, it's like the dramatic irony of it is like, of course, because if you're not caring about the cost, if you're not caring about the people and the situation and what's actually happening, there's no way you're ever going to be able to beat the Gundams that way, right? And that's basically what the, the final confirmation with Asimu comes down to is that in order for Zehart to continue on the path he's going on, he's had to lose the thing that made him powerful in the first place, which was his empathy for people um, and the fact that he really cared about people. And that's what made him an effective military commander, an effective fighter, like an effective warrior, is he carried himself with honor and respect and love and care. And he's lost all of that. And so that final confrontation with Asimu, where Asimu says... Like, isn't the whole point where 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 Zehart says to Asimu, like, I've abandoned my human feelings a long time ago. Like, I've abandoned my human emotions to get to this point. And Asimu just says, like, isn't the whole point of this Eden thing so that human beings can be human beings? And Zehart has this look of shock on his face. And then Asimu completely takes him to pieces. And I really love um, in the original TV version, because they changed, this is where you did a lot of different stuff with the OVA, which we'll talk about. But in the TV version, Asimu just takes apart Zehart in about like 30 seconds at that point. Like it's not even much of a fight. And I like the way that it's framed that way, because at that point, Zehart's got nothing. Like there's nothing right. behind his actions. So of course, Asimu's just going to rip him completely to pieces um, because there's nothing behind Zehart anymore. He's already lost. He's already given up the thing that made him what he was. Um, and so that, you know, tragic downfall there, I think, is just very affecting. Yeah, the fight in the OVA is a great piece of animation, and it looks really cool. It doesn't hold a candle, I think, to how it all plays out in the show. Because yeah. we'll get to the OVA. It, it makes a lot of changes here that I think just missed the point of the scene entirely. Uh -huh. um, but... I love, so you have that that very brief fight where Asimu just tears him apart. Also, I, I will make my argument later, I think Asimu is like low-key the best pilot in this universe. Oh, yes. Um, he's, Definitely. He's fucking, because he doesn't have any X-Rounder abilities and he makes up for it with just being better than everyone. He's a super um, pilot. He's a super pilot. And then, but then, so once he's defeated Zayhart, Zayhart has this line. I have all the like pictures here because I just, what I do with Gundam shows now when I'm watching and I want to remember dialogue is I just screenshot over and over again and fill up my camera roll. Mm -hmm. um, but hey, it works. Um, where where Zayhart says, everything is slipping through my fingers. Why can't I grasp it? And and says something about his humanity. And, and uh, Asimu comes back and says, there are things we can't grasp because we're human. Um, you saved me many times when I was your enemy. Before you were a warrior, you were a human being. I love that line. I think that's mm -hmm. a beautiful, beautiful line. Um, and I love that that's sort of one of the things that gets through to Zayhart here. And then he starts talking about the mobile suit club and remembering that he was content and that he felt jealous of Asamu for being more in touch with his humanity there, sort of. Yeah. Um, and, and specifically, I love, I, like, the way that Zayhart says it in Japanese is he basically says, like, that's the only time in his life he felt fulfilled was yeah. the time that he was on in that mobile suit club. It's like the only time that he felt, like, satisfied, basically. 
Aww. And it's it's so beautiful. And I love that. And this is this is one of the main things. I'll just say the OVA version gives Zayhart a much bigger speech. It's like much more of like a soliloquy. I think it, it it misses the point in several ways that we'll get to. But one of the things it does is it makes it very pat, where Zayhart gets to like give a clean explanation to everything and Asamu gets to give him a clean explanation back and then they're just able to kind of leave off as friends and that's not the point the point of the scene is that it's fucking it hurts it's a tragedy there is no way to fully like make sense of it I like that in the TV screenplay it is not resolved fully like mm -hmm. it's there's just a lot of messiness in what they're saying and Asamu has a lot of complicated feelings and they are sort of able to leave as friends and say like nice things at the very end but it's brutal and it hurts and there is like Zayhart does not die having figured life out because it's a tragedy and that's how it has to go you know yeah and I think it, it's very effective then at setting up where like the the final episode goes with like the Esselkant stuff of like a big piece of the like i think kind of like the thesis of the show is that like you i mean there's a couple of things there of that like you can't be fixated on like the perfect right it's a kind of a perfect is the enemy of the good but this like idea that like we need to create the perfect human race or we need to create this paradise that we have to make this world where nothing bad happens because i felt this terrible pain and i can't let this pain happen to me or anyone else ever again is not a sane way to react to living your life right that 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 is you are just trying to run away from what you're experiencing rather than trying to face up to it and that's i think part of what awesome is saying here is like you need to be human like you can't you need to just live your life like you can't be fixated on these ideals that are so larger than anything that any person could possibly accomplish and the, these like abstract ideas when all those abstract ideas are trying to accomplish is you seeing the world that's right, been right in front of you the entire time. So just see it. Just live that life. Do the things you want to do and be the person you want to be. Um, and and you, you can't let the pain and the grief and the loss you've suffered cause you to abandon all those things that made that grief important to you in the first place. Um, and that's then that becomes a much more sort of finer argument once it like, goes through Keo and Ezelkan. But it's setting up those ideas here. And I think that's one of like the reasons why you need to have this scene where it is, is it is you resolving these two characters' story arc in this very like personal way that then is good sets up, I think, the slightly bigger like conclusion that that then Eslikon and Keo have taking this idea to this kind of bigger, more philosophical perspective that those characters' relationship reflects. Yeah. And I just, man, I really love that piece of writing where he says to him, before you were a warrior, you were a human being. There's yeah. something about the, like, poetry of that line and, like, the, just that underlying idea of exactly what you said of, like, underneath all of that, you are the thing you're running from and trying to fight. Like, you yeah. are human and you can't get rid of yourself. You can't, like, get your humanity out of the world. It's it's a part of it. It's an indelible part of this thing that we're all running from in this war. Um Great stuff, and man, what a what a great performance by what's the name of the actor? Zayhart. Uh, oh, Hiroshi Kamiya. Yeah, the yeah. fucking he's great. I yeah. I don't even sense that Zayhart takes like a full fifty percent of his abilities as an actor, but fuck it, he knocks it out of the park. He's just so good. Yeah, it's phenomenal. <laughs> and 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 the last note on on this whole sequence is that that line you're pointing out about the before you were a warrior, you were human is also a nice callback to 
the end of part two, where the end of that is Asimu, or is Zayhart recognizing Asimu as a warrior, right? And that's like the note they leave off on is he says like, like you two are fighting for the things that you care about. Um, like you, and you're doing this, like you, I recognize you as a warrior. I think coming that, bringing that full circle um, and Asimu showing the way that Zayhart has been stuck and Asimu has grown, right? And like Zayhart has literally been stuck, right? Because he was frozen he was like cryogenically frozen after the conclusion of part two. He's like the same age, basically, in part three he was. Um, I think he's like supposed to be like a little bit older. Um, but he has not been able to grow and learn in the way that Asamu has been able to grow and learn. Because because the other line, because that whole sequence, the writing's so good. Because the other line Zayhart has that is also heartbreaking is he says, I wanted to like be able to fall in love and have a family and a child like you. Right, because that's something else that Ze that Ezlikant's whole thing with Zehart has robbed him of that life. Because Zehart's life is in fits and starts. Because when he's not necessary for the plan, he's put into fucking cold sleep. So he's never been able to have those relationships with people. The, that whole part of who he is has been taken from him by Ezlikant. Yes, there is a cool moment in the OVA where you go. How they make the shift from the second to third arc is they just stay in Zehart's POV. Mm -hmm. And so you see him go into cryosleep and then come out and it's 25 years later and it's back to business. That's a nice little point of view to get there of like reminding you like, right, there was no big gap here where like Asamu lived a life and Keo is born and, and Flit became a grandpa and all that stuff. For Zayhart, none of that happened. Yeah. Yeah. So then you have the final episode where they have a lot of plot to deal with. And the way we kind of square it all is we have the um, Vegan Gear come out, which I went to look that mobile suit design up the other day, and I realized when you type in Vegan Gear into Google, they think that's Vegan Gear, and they try to show you a bunch of, like, vegan stuff. Um, and it took me a while to find an actual picture of the mobile suit, the Vegan Gear. The, ve the Vegan... The Vegan sorry, Gear. Vegan Gear, which basically looks like the Red Eyes Black Metal Dragon from Yu-Gi-Oh! Uh -huh. It's very cool. And you have that piloted by the clone, and this winds up, like, melding with the Exit DB Sid stuff and causing this fucking chain reaction on Second Moon that threatens to destroy it. Flit takes this opportunity with his big nuke thing. I forget what he calls it. The like the plasma the, diver or something like the that. Plasma diver. And this is the perfect opportunity. He can literally nuke Second Moon into nothing and kill every last Vagan in existence. And he is ready to pull the trigger. And then Keo gets between him and the nuke. Um, and this is the culmination of the show. And I, I found it very impressive how gracefully they're able to take all of those narrative pieces and make it into one focused story for this final episode, which is basically Flit is the antagonist kind of here. Mm -hmm. It's that, that's what, what really needs to be defeated at this moment is whatever's going on in Flit's heart that, you know, prevents him from moving beyond the hatred. Yeah. And then this is where you have... The best scene in the show where you you have Keo is convincing Flit and telling him you have to stand down and he's like, No, I need to become a savior, I need to kill them all. And and Keo calls him out on his bullshit and is like, What kind of savior is that? Like that's no savior that I could possibly recognize. And then you get this flash into Flit's head where you have little kid Flit who we have not seen in a very long time, um, and Toshiyuki Toyonaga playing him, which is like if that actor did not just do did such a phenomenal job playing Flit when he was a kid and like making that voice in that character so memorable, I don't think the scene would hit nearly as hard as it does. But because he just 
nailed it so hard in the early section of the show when you see Flit and he's in the cockpit, but like the rest of the mechanism is gone. And it's like in this sort of spectral forest and he's there and he's holding the trigger and you now have little kid Flit talking about it. I mean, it did like, I started to tear up a little bit because I think there's... It's unbelievably powerful. Yeah, it's, it is... I Definitely, I think being a teacher in particular has like made some of these like Gundam Boy stories like hit in a way that feels weird. And this one in particular, like revisiting this little boy and seeing how much this boy has been trapped in this, you know, old man body that we have not like been able to see him for so long, but he's always been buried down there. And, and that being all stripped away here uh, in this scene is so powerful. It's beautifully animated. It's unbelievably beautifully acted also by Yurin who comes yes. in here and has several beautiful it basically becomes a dialogue between him and Yurin and him mm -hmm. saying I mean some of the dialogue here is great I love that in his head as young Flit he's immediately able to he says I know they're suffering too but they took you from me I couldn't save you I couldn't do anything and what am I supposed to do with that and then Yurin turns to him and says thank you my gentle Flit and that's what she calls him and tell and begs him basically to forgive she says forgive them forgive everyone and then forgive yourself and over all of this you have a really beautiful insert song playing with it's lyrics the same that, insert song that was the montage right. from their scene together in okay. act one yeah. that's what i thought but i didn't remember but i mean you recognize the song mm -hmm. you obviously recognize flit's voice you recognize Yurin's voice i the amount of like sadness that that actor puts into Flit's voice and that you what I love is that it's it's young Flit's voice but it's old Flit's words it's like uh -huh. it's it's it is old Flit having these thoughts and they've been there with him his entire life and I love that in his head he absolutely knows this is fucked up of course of course that kid that little Flit knows this is fucked up right yeah. and it's just so hard to let go of it um and having that be the linchpin of the episode and then we come back and he becomes the absolute best version of himself, mm -hmm. where he is able to rally everyone on both sides and say, "Hey, there's this colony full of people, full of city, full of you know civilians, and we've got to take out these things. Everybody, stop fighting. Vegans, save your people. Earthers, let's help save these innocent civilians. Let's do it." And you see the shot of him like in the in the Gundam Age, his original Gundam Age, like directing everyone, like go here, go here, and you cut back and to he Kyo who fires the plasma diver up into the air and uses that explosion as like the call to like, hey, everyone, like yeah. come to me and let's do this. Right. Yeah. Um, and then you cut back to Kyo saying, Grandpa finally did it. He became a true savior who saves everyone. And you fade from an image of Kyo to an image of the Gundam over those words. Yes. Um that that broke me a little mm -hmm. bit. That is again like you, you you start with the word savior in episode one. The, the episode one is called the Savior Gundam, and you have Flit saying, "I'm going to become a savior" as a little kid, and he doesn't really understand what that means. And you go and you complicate that idea, and you complicate that idea, and it it hardens in him until he thinks being a savior means doing a fucking genocide. And then you come out on the other end, and what being a savior is, is using the Gundam to rally, as a symbol, as it is kind of in the real world now, as, as a piece of media, right? To rally everyone together to do this beautiful thing of saving this entire civilization of people and extending this humanity to your enemy and being bigger and better than the ones who hurt him. Um, and that's what being a savior means. That's the answer. This is a great show. 
This is that you can start from that point and end that point and build on that line. I don't care if there's a couple of messy Gerard Spriggan episodes. There are shows with, you know, fewer, like, problems, like, fewer Gerard Spriggan shows that don't reach a moment, like Keo become yeah. like, Flip becoming the savior. This is a special show. Yeah, it's a, it is an incredibly powerful moment that is just, like, you see just so much of the weight of time that, cause you, that you have spent in the show and that, like, has passed over the course of the show weighing on Flit and how much that just the sadness has like steeped so deeply into him that even though he instinctually knows right that this is wrong and you and you and that's where you see the little kid it's like it's why it has to be little kid Flit because you know that that kid would not have done these things like you know I mean because he spared Dessel's life right like back in part one like when it came down to it he didn't kill the little kid that killed Yuting because he couldn't bring himself to do it because he knew deep in himself that it was wrong to do. Um, but that part got shaved down and he pressed it down so much as he got older, but it's always there deep inside of him that he has a fundamental warmth and kindness. And the thing that was sad is that it's that warmth and kindness. And like we said earlier, it's like that love he has is what makes his hate and his pain as strong as it is. And it's like him having to learn to let some of that go. And, and as Yuni says, to like forgive people and to forgive himself. And you just have to let it go. You can't hold on to it like that because it poisons you. Um, and the way that, you know, that she calls him gentle or kind, um, like my gentle flit, is that like recognition that is like the all of the awful things he's been doing and things he's been saying about into the vegans comes fundamentally from this warmth and kindness and gentleness he felt towards Yudin and the other people he cared about, like his mother. Um, and seeing that's like these emotions and these things we do are not isolated, but they're all part of like the same human being that you are and that you have to face up to that and not run away from it. Um, I think it's just a really beautiful message that's really beautifully put across and then having it culminate in you get to be finally you get to be fully on grandpa flit's side and you're like yes like this is the person you were born to be this is who you were supposed to be this is the the potential that like the viewer and every like every adult in young flit's life saw in this little kid back in part one and this is part of what watching the show uh, twice does is you can see oh this is where they're planting all these flags of the way that people respond to flit and see him in this little kid eventually he finds that again and is able to be that thing that they hoped that he would be you know like back when we're talking about don voyage and those characters this is what they saw in him and the fact that he gets to finally become it right at the end of the show um as you say it it is it is a thing that other shows have less mess to them but very few shows have the kind of grandeur of storytelling that this is able to pull off with this moment and Keo here is such a great part of the show because mm -hmm. what Keo kind of winds up being in that moment is the audience surrogate, right? Mm -hmm. And I love that that Keo gets to embody the joy that we all feel there, right? Yeah. And Keo gets to say, "You've become the savior. I'm so proud you're my grandpa," right? Because he he loves Flit. Flit's his grandpa's grandpa's Gundam, all that stuff, right? Yeah. He loves this man, and he was so terrified by the idea that he might not see through him. You know, I. Obviously, this was not on the mind of the creators of this show, but I could not help but Anna, you know, analogize for myself that there's several moments where he says, 
I he says like to Asamu and other people, I can't get through to Grandpa. He won't listen. He's on this tirade, and I couldn't help but think about like people in America right now who have mm-hmm. relatives who are screaming about the vaccine or saying the election was stolen or saying Heil Trump or whatever else they're doing and how those relationships are broken and how great it would feel if those people came back from that edge, right? Yeah. Um, and that that's something that happens here. And it's a, it's a, it's a absolutely stunningly beautiful moment. And, you know, I knew that this show would end this way, right? Like, yes, I'm 28. I've seen other stories. I said this on the last podcast, that this is going to have to end with some big heel rede- or Flit redemption moment. I knew that it was going to end with Flit having the choice to either do the vague extermination or not, and then having to be called by his better angels, right? Like, of mm-hmm. course it was going to end this way. The test of Gundam Age as a show was not, is it going to surprise me there? The test is, how well do they do that moment that is, that moment is the reason the show exists, that is the reason to tell this story. How do you do that moment? And I don't think they could have done that moment any better. Yeah. And that is the test of this show. And that's ultimately why I feel like this is a show I love and think is a great part of the Gundam canon. Absolutely. Yeah. Then so so then they you know, they save the day, they fight the the evil, the vegan gear, or the vegan gear, depending on which one you want. Um the Vagan Gear, the, the destruction of the Vagan Gear is very good because you get Keo going full Super Saiyan in the mobile suit and basically quoting the end of the Piccolo Daimao uh-huh. arc where he just flies through its center, which is great. But also, I love that Keo saves the clone. Yes. Like, that's just a little touch. They didn't have to do it. But I love that Keo stays true to his... Once Keo decides he won't kill anyone, he never does. And he does it all the way up to protecting the life of this clone that you could argue isn't even fully human, and yet Keo does it. And, like, that's a very strong moment of Keo, I think, being his own person. And I love that they keep that detail in there. It's it's powerful to me. Yeah, it's the last, like... It's the, the last real moment of tension in the show. Because after Flit says, we need to save them, I think, like, at that point, like, even though they technically... They still have to fight the Vagan Gear, then they have to cut all the things that are connected to Second Moon that are draining its power... Um, th- even though there's that stuff that has to be done, you don't feel the tension because I think you're like, they're going to fucking do this. Like, and you're not supposed right. to narratively experience tension. Like you, they're so successful. You're like, of course, everything's come together that they're going to accomplish this goal. The last real moment of tension is, can Keo resolve this battle without taking a life? And, and I love the way they play it where they, you, you know, kind of feel like, oh, did he actually have to kill him? And then... He opens up the hands of the Gundam, and you see the clone boy in there, in the look of relief on Kia's face. Um, and and I like that. That is like really the ending of the show is Kia sparing that life and like being able to resolve this without killing this person. Um, and then you get the narration from uh, Kazuhiko Inoue, who has been our narrator the whole time, even when you were a little kid, Flit, and he wasn't playing a character yet. He was still our narrator talking about this is the end of the war. It's been a hundred years, uh, and you have your in credits, epilogue uh, to Asimu and Kyo as old men, um, and they're standing there, and there's a statue of Grandpa Flit, um, and then he he was the savior, uh, and, and got a big statue in his name, which is well deserved. Kyo's not really old yet. He's only it's because he would be like in his forties, I guess. He's got lines um, on his face, which means he's true. an old man. Like they, you, <laughs> you put those two lines around the cheeks, and that's anime code for this is, as you would say in Japanese, this is an Oji-san. 
Yes. So this ends, um, yeah, it ends 100 years from the day the angel fell yeah. from basically Flit's birth. So Flit is obviously dead at that point. Um, and you have the statue. I love that the statue that they're looking at is Old Man Flit. Yes. I love that it's it's the guy who saved the day. He's got his goggles on. It's kind of the best version of Flit. Um, you've got a little statue of the Gundam there. I like that this, the, it's a very short scene, but the uh, yeah. the the implication that Asumu and, and Kyo went on and had a great relationship as father and son, that's meaningful to me. I like that. Yeah. Um, One you know, thing I was I, pretty disappointed by with that epilogue is that we didn't have a little kid walk up that looks exactly like Wendy. Um, we, like we just continue the trope of like, oh, the Asano family, like the male genes, they just really fucking weak because boy Keo sure just looks like a little boy version of Romery, huh? I will say, I do, I kind of wish they were able to like run five minutes longer on this episode and do like a final montage of like Keo and some of the other characters after the war through mm -hmm. the years scored to like Asue, the first theme song. I feel like that would have been a great way to end things. Um, it, I don't think the show suffers for not having that. I will say the, the final narration explains that they were able to, with the ExaDB stuff, nullify the Mars rays, and then the Vegans were able to go live on Mars again. And I was a little bit like, but did they want to? I just seemed like they didn't like Mars that much. Like, why didn't she just give them Australia or something? Like, come on. Because then, then we would start the Gundam Age Australian chapter. That's that's the manga spinoff, um, is all the wars in the outback. Um... With, with yeah, you know, it worked for all those British suits. prisoners a couple hundred years ago, and, you know, yes. eventually we got Hugh Jackman out of it. I mean, if there's Good anything deal. we've learned from the 20th century on Earth, Jonathan, is that if you just take uh, land from people and give it to other people, it just works great, you know? <laughs> Nobody has a problem with it. You don't have, you know, decades-long wars and conflicts that spring up from the decision of just saying, hey, what if we just had all of you people live where these people were living? Okay, I guess it makes sense that they got Mars back, but, you know, still. I, I think the overall focus of the ending, obviously, is that they, they worked together and found a solution, yes. which is all we needed to know. So it works. It's good. Um, it's a great ending. I, you know, I've, I saw the complaint also that people thought, like, oh, the Vagan gear came out of left field. And this, it's like, I don't, I, I guess, kind of, but I don't care because that's the, that thing is there in the finale as a MacGuffin to get yes. us to the actual plot. It doesn't matter, and frankly, it looks fucking cool, and there's some good action around it, so all the better for it. I don't... It's fine. Yeah, like, it's, it's. I think, the clone thing and the vegan gear, like, it could be better. Like, it is It is very much a, we need to have a last fight at the end of this show, and for the reasons we've already said, it can't be Zayhart. I mean, for a million reasons, it would not make any plot sense at all for that fight to be with Zayhart. Um, and so, you know, and that's why I said, like, it, it reminds me of Kid Buu in the sense of it feels like it's less of a character and more of just a symbol for conflict. Um, because Kid Boo at the end of the Boo arc, they've like they've defeated Boo, the character, and then now they have this sort of like raging child that is incredibly powerful that they have to put a stop to. Um, you know, all we're missing is, you know, uh, Asimu looking at Kyo fighting uh, the Vegan Gear and going and reminiscing about all the moments he's been with Kyo, which is like two, because he's kind of a, a, a bad absentee father, and saying, Kyo, you are really number one. Um, that's all we need to do to have our full Kid Buu arc here with the Vegan Gear. Um, Who's Mr. Satan in this situation, like rallying the people of uh, Earth? Grandpa Flit. Okay, there we go. Yep. Um, anyway. Uh, yes, I, I like your comparison. I think it's a good compare. I like any Dragon Ball analogy, yes. so so I'm 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 down with that. Um, 
I had one other thing I wanted to say about say. Oh, Ezelkant. I love that Ezelkant yes. and Keo have a final moment where Ezelkant is just fully able to kind of admit that Keo was right and say, like, and I entrust the future of humanity to you. Like, not literally, you're going to rule Earth, but, like, you know, I trust it to your way of seeing things. That'd be a very different epilogue is, like, God Emperor Keo on his throne. <laughs> just go Dune all of a sudden? Yes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> very different ending. They, that would have to be a hell of a 30-second uh, tag at the end to uh -huh. pull that off. No, but but I like that Ezelkant is able to do that, and then he passes away. You know, there's a very, like, like Moses-esque quality to Ezelkant, who's this mm -hmm. guy who is, like, leading his people to, like, the promised land, but will never see it himself, and he knows that. It's a little different, because Moses wasn't also planning to, like, kill half of his people. Uh -huh. um, but, you know, it's it, it roughly... It, it, it's a better analogy than any of the, like, Christian shit in Evangelion. So, yes. you know, it works. Yeah, no, yeah, that last moment is really effective. Um, and again, it's just that, you know, that characterization of Ezekiel where he, that moment, he's, like, able to recognize that, like, so much of his motivation was misguided and came from this, like, the loss of his son and, and all those things we talked about with that character. Yeah, then just bringing yeah. all that kind of more fully into the text and passing passing it all off onto Keo and the rest of the human race. Um, who are going to go be humans, you know? We're just going to go do human shit. Um, and now uh, most of us don't have to worry about the Mars rays either. Yes, exactly. So it's a good ending. So let's clean up a couple of other pieces of business here. Um, we got to talk about the mobile suits, but first let's talk about theme songs really quick. This is uh, exactly like the, the first half of the show where two of the, 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 the arc, arc three opening and ending, I love. I think they're fucking great. Um, and then I thought the arc four opening and ending were kind of, they're fine. They just didn't love them. Like, I'm going to be honest, like, I don't really like, I mean, I don't dislike them, but I'm not like a big fan of really any of the openings or endings in the second half of the show. Like, they're not bad. They're all very like standard. Uh, oh, I like, I like real a lot. I think that one has a cool, like vocal, like syncopation to it that I really like. And then I think I just I think White Justice is a really good ending. It's, it's its name is a little uncomfortable. I don't really love saying I like a song called White Justice, but please understand this is from Japan and they're talking about the color of the Gundam. It's not a race thing. Um, I do like that one. And then the other two, like I thought they were fine. I just don't just they're not my favorites or anything. That like honestly, actually, out of those four songs, I think probably Aurora, the in the opening for the last arc, is probably my favorite because they just kind of sound like anime songs to me. Like none of them, yeah. none of those four really stand out in the way that Asue um, particularly stood out to me in in part right. one, and then My World, which is not quite as good, but is also very good by Spire. Um, I think none of them, like especially if you're if you're going by the, our standard of like you know the the standard bearer is Double O Gundam for modern. Um, era Gundam theme songs like none of these like approach the quality of what that show was dealing with other than no Asue. not really I, I Asue I would put up there yes, but Asue um, um, but like yeah it's it's not on that I, I'll say like I it's I liked it better than like Seed or Seed Destiny which like there's a lot of like really bad ones there the, to be fair Seed would, also has like one of the best songs ever as its yeah. first ending so I would um, honestly put most of these like sort of in I would I like them more than the seed ones mostly because I just like the genre more because they're a bit more J-rock um, than the seed had that has that weird like early 2000s like it's a little bit too electronica and but not like good electronica um, but they have this very standard feel to me and I think it might just because I've watched way too much fucking anime that like I have heard a million songs that sound exactly like those songs and if they don't do something that stands out they just kind of blur together for me. 
totally fair. My my real my only real like gauge here is how much have I listened to it outside of the show and Asue and My World the most, but then yes. those the the Arc Three songs I have several times and and I do like those as well. So um, it's fine. Uh, not certainly not a drag on the show in any way. There is no century color in this show, so yeah. that's we'll call that a victory. Um, but then, yeah, mobile suits. I I I came around to by the end thinking this show has quite a good assemblage of mobile suits in it. Yeah, I think I think the second half in particular has a lot of really great mobile suit yeah. designs. Um, so you've got the Gundam Age Three itself, which is obviously a, a pull off of the Double Zeta. Um, but it's so good. It's really great. Yeah, the, I, I think Big it's, Boy Gundam. It's a big boy Gundam, but like I think it's the best of the the Gundams in this show, at least of the like the age, the four age models we get. I think the age three is the best. I could put in an argument for the age two with the like what is its big the power bullet. up? The double the age two double bullet is pretty fucking good, mm -hmm. but I just think the age three. I love how I, like I think the size of a double Zeta style Gundam with the sort of like blocky bold color quality of Age's designs just works perfectly. I think it's a really striking mobile suit and I loved looking at it. And I was a little disappointed when we went to the HFX, which is cool. I like its funnels. Its funnels are really cool. But overall, I, I wasn't feeling it nearly as much as the H3. Yeah, I like the HFX in the sense of like, it's it's pulling obvious design elements from the new Gundam, like its legs and its shoulders. And then obviously the fact that it then has uh, fin funnels is very new Gundam-esque. But yes, I think the Gundam H3, I think for me specifically, it's the Gundam H3 Fortress, which is the it's one he so uses good. on the land that kind of hovers, and it has these big cannons on the arms and on the back. I used that um, a lot in Gundam Breaker 3 when I played that like five or six years ago at this point, uh, because it was it looks fucking sick, and that game is also very useful because you can just use them as cannons. Uh, but in this show, that is just, it's one of the best mobile shoot suits in this show, um, and from kind of this year of Gundam to me, I, I really like the Gundam H3 Fortress in particular. Yes, absolutely. Uh, um, then we have, we talked already kind of a lot about the Gundam H2 Darkhound, uh, it's so sick good. as fuck, uh, you know, it's in particular, I like, like the, I like how it's weird armaments, like the light onto the chest and the hooks and all of that play into Asamu's like really kind of eccentric fighting style. Um, That's what I was going to say. Yeah. Like he, I, I love how much it becomes an extension of his character, which the age two, they did that a lot as well. But I think they're able to do it even more with the Dark Hound because it's so tailored to him. And there are just some very striking action sequences that come out of it where like the hooks are not just a silly pirate gimmick. They actually make it into an action thing on the show. And it's, it's very cool. Yes. Um, and then for me, like the other major mobile suit that I really like, that this might actually be my favorite mobile suit from the show is the Gundam Legolas. Um, just there's something about a Gundam with gold highlights that that it just stands out really well. I love. I mean, the way it first pops out and it has like it's a Gundam, but then it has like the weird visor thing that the Vegan mobile suits have. I think looks really cool. And then I like when later, um, when it's like full powered or whatever, then that visor pops open and you have the Gundam eyes underneath it, kind of like a, the Unicorn Gundam and how that kind of unfolds and turns into a more traditional Gundam look. Um, I think the Legolas Gundam looks pretty fucking cool. I agree. It's it's fantastic. I think of the like, I guess the the Dark Hound I kind of put in a different category because it's yeah. all black and pirate shit. But like of the main line, like five Gundams we have on the show, the Age One, Two, Three, FX, and the the Legolas Gundam. I think I would go Age Three Legolas uh, as the top two, and and those are then yeah, it's a really cool Gundam. I like that it's the one like Zayhart gets to pilot a Gundam, mm -hmm. and that's cool. The OVA 
replaces the Gundam Legolas with like a different like it's like red mobile suit that's more like his other ones and it is cool I like it's a nice design but no I want him in the Gundam Legolas that thing's fucking awesome yes. yeah absolutely it's a sick sick ass design and then you continue to have like I don't think any of the individual vegan mobile suits stand out to me a huge amount but I do just like the design philosophy it's in a similar way that like I just like the mobile suits from Victory Gundam that the enemies have just because they're different like yeah. you have so many mobile suits that it's like this is just kind of like a worse version of a Zaku. Um, and you see like five or six bad versions of Zakus. And it's like, give me the weird bug mobile suit or the crazy dragon mobile suit. Because at least I can look at it and be like, this is a this is from fucking Gundam Age. It looks different. It has its own design philosophy, its own unique identity. Um, and I, I enjoy those. I agree 100%. I think it's great. The, the Vagan gear, I think, is really cool. I, mm -hmm. The Vagan gear would be like a dark horse for me, maybe, on my top ten next year. Maybe that would be an honorable mention or slip in at the bottom, depending on what all we have. It is a... I love that it is... Like, that one is just the most blatant. Like, it's a Yu-Gi-Oh card. It is just uh -huh, like... Yes. I did some tweets on this. It's the Red Eyes Black Metal Dragon. That's totally what it is. But it's all CGI. It moves in such, like, a weird, like, fluid way. It's very, like, sinewy and thin. I think it's a, I think it's a cool design. And obviously, it does not get a ton of time on the show, but it is a cool thing. I think the Sid mobile suit is an interesting thing. And again, I like the little experiments they're doing with CGI here because they're able to do some mobile suits that you would not have been able to do before. And I like that. It's fun. Yeah. So overall, I the this show is easy on the eyes when it comes to mobile suits. There's a lot of good stuff. Yes, and particularly I think the second half, you got a lot of really good designs. Um, some other things to clean up, like this is just I just want to mention this because I find it very funny. I think we didn't mention him in part two, but there is a character Algreus, um, who is sort of uh, uh, Flit's secondhand man who ends up becoming leader of the Federation in part three. I just want to mention him because he's voiced by an actor we have now seen. Uh, twice in major roles in Gundam he's been in small roles in like I think two or three other Gundams too but Takahito uh, Koyasu who's Zex in Gundam Wing and is Mula Flaga in Gundam Seed and Gundam Seed Destiny is here again uh, to play Algreus and I just find it funny uh, that he's like the dude just really likes fucking Gundam so it's like when, when an opportunity comes up he's like yes. let me be in a Gundam because he also plays small roles in Gundam F91 he's a very small role in Victory Gundam um, the guy just, he, you know, he likes, he's in, I think, some Gundam stuff that we haven't even seen yet, too, so. That's awesome. You know, he's great, and I, I like Algreus. I kind of love yeah. when you get him in the third era, and he's got, like, the mustache and everything, and he's uh -huh. older, and just how much, like, he's been putting up with Flit for a long time. Uh -huh. And, uh, and, you know, he's a little annoyed by it, but he also knows that Flit is smarter than him, so he just kind of goes with it. It's, it's kind of funny. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then one thing I also want to say, like, because uh, this is a criticism we talked about last time, but I think in many ways it's it is it's still my biggest issue with the show is I am like very frustrated with how underused the female cast is, and I think in particular yes. part three and part four, you have one scene with Romery, um, and that's it, uh, where she sees Asamu again and is like, "I'm alive!" And it's like, "Yay!" And then and then I maybe I'll see you again sometime. I don't know. Anyways, I'm gonna go be a space pirate again. Um, you don't have any scenes with Emily. Um, you have Unua, who's uh, Asami's sister. She's on the ship, so she gets a little bit of time, um, but not much. And then you have Wendy, who is there, right? She's just like, it feels like they realized they didn't have to actually invest in Wendy as much as a character as they had to do with the other heroines in parts one and two, because this is the last one, so you don't have to have her have a kid. So like, 
well, she'll be there to suggest the fact that, you know, eventually that the, the Osno line will continue with a Windy-esque child in the future. Um, but they don't really do much with her as a character in any way. And it just is kind of frustrating the way the show kind of continually sets up characters like Emily in particular in part one, Romery less so, but it's still interesting. And these interesting female characters and then invest in them. And then as soon as the time jump, they're basically nowhere to be seen. It is, it is frustrating. It's frustratingly heteronormative. In my head canon, because there's nothing to, to say this is wrong, well, I'll just say Keo's gay. Keo's the gay one. And maybe maybe what um, his fr- what Wendy is, is she's like the surrogate at some point to, his, <laughs> to him and his partner when they decide to have a baby. And that's how the Asano line continues. But um, no, we'll just, you know, just in my head canon, we don't see his partner in the future. So fuck it. Keo, Keo gets to, to be queer. That we'll, we'll go with that. Yeah. It's also just something where... You know, I just think there's like a lot of space to have some interesting scenes, like a scene between Keo and Emily, right? His grandmother in talking about Flit or something. Just some of those perspectives of these are characters that have seen so much and experienced so much in this world, and you just don't visit them again ever. Like, we don't ever find out how does Romery feel about Zayhart now that she's older, right? Like, you get in the OVA, they have one five second scene of her on Earth, like looking up at the night sky. Um, even the OVA doesn't commit to having an actual scene with her. Um, so, like, that kind of stuff is, feels like it's by far, like, the biggest missed opportunity um, I think Gundam Age has. But, you know, it's also a pattern I think we've seen in AU Gundam. I think there's a yeah. lot of non-Tomino Gundam shows that are just very bad with their female characters. Mm-hmm. Um, in general, like, the, the pattern still continues that, by and large, there are very few female pilots outside of the Tomino shows. Yeah. And, you'll like, where you'll have women in military power in the AU shows is usually as captain. And that's kind of where they, we've fallen. But, like, it's... You'll sometimes have enemy pilots be women, but it's pretty rare you'll have one of the hero pilots be a woman. Even even Double O falls into this. Yes. Um, and it's, it's a little depressing because I, I don't... The Tomino shows have never really had that hang up. That's you, you have Sela doing piloting in the first show. It's never been a problem, but mm-hmm. it is in a lot of the AU stuff. So, oh well. Yeah. So I think the last thing to to wrap up then is is we did watch the OVA series on Memory of Eden. So these were two basically 60, 70 minute long OVAs made a year after Gundam Age was over. Um, and I watched them and they are, that's two compilation movies of Gundam Age. I don't know. I didn't, I didn't really kind of like come away with much from, from that experience. So, I mean, the reason we did it is because I had several people recommend it and, um, like I had heard from some people who, who like it. So I just thought it would be interesting. It is, you know, we, we, we haven't talked about it a ton, but there are other, OVAs from the yes. last couple shows like Seed, Seed Destiny and Double O did compilation OVAs in lieu of compilation movies but I had never heard of there being too much different in those like Seed does have those but then they're they take the different stuff and they work it into the HD yeah. version of the show so that's where we talked about that what Memory of Eden is is a very weird thing because it's not the full show it is just the second and third not even the third arc it skips the third arc entirely it's the second and fourth arc but from Zayhart in particular and a little bit of Asamu's perspective, 
it's interesting because the first part does redo almost everything on the colony between Asamu and Zehart. It um, is all it's either all new scenes or redone versions of old scenes. Um, and I do think there's some really good scenes there. The did scratch and itch I, I maybe had from those episodes where I just wanted a little more of that stuff. Um, like there's this scene where Asamu and Zehart and Romery are out like on this the colony like looking out at it before graduation. It's a very lovely scene. Um, there's some other moments like that that are nice. They reframe some scenes like um, Asamu and Zehart's sort of confrontation at the end of the colony portion where it was just in sort of a normal natural part of the colony in the show and then it's in sort of a fiery like um, destroyed part of the colony in the OVA. And then in part two... You can skip the first half hour of part two because it's just a recompilation of the end of arc two and I don't even know why it's there really. There's no new animation. I just skipped. I've scrubbed through it. Um, and then you, the most of part two is Zayhart focused and they add in several more of the space Macbeth scenes and I think some of those are really good. There's some new fight scenes that are very good. I would definitely, if you're a fan of this show, look up the, the new fight between Zayhart and Asamu that's in the OVA. I don't think it's a, like, I wouldn't put it in the TV show because I think it kind of misses the point of that moment, but it is a very cool piece of action choreography and animation and direction and everything. Um, so there's a lot of good, like, new little scenes there, but there's a couple of things they change that I really don't like. Like, for one, they redo all of the stuff with Fram to make it explicitly romantic mm -hmm. between Zayhard and Fram, which to me just utterly misses the point of that relationship, which is that Zayhart treated Fram like he does all of his subordinates, which yeah. is he treasures all of them, and then her, him betraying her is a symbol of him betraying all of them, not this one special romance. And then they redo Zayhart and Asamu's final conversation together, um, and I think kind of the, the dialogue there misses the point of that. It, like, makes it too pat and simple and, like, gives him... Like, it, it stops it from being a tragedy, almost, because it makes his motivation sound too noble. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think I just generally have a problem. This is, I just typically do not like compilation-type stuff. Kind of a lot for this reason of where some of, like, the new stuff is kind of interesting on its own in a vacuum, but you're not being presented it in a vacuum. You're being presented it in this, like, very awful version of the story you had from the TV show, right? Right. So it's, like, all the stuff where you do have some new material with Romery and Zehar and Asimu in that first part of the first Memory of Eden thing. But you also have, like, most of the material that was there in the TV show isn't there in the OVA. So, like, you lose things that are, I think, critical pieces of characterization that would make those moments stand out a lot more. Like that final, that confrontation between Zehar and Asimu on the colony in the first OVA, where he finds out that Zehar is a vegan. Like the reason why that scene works in the TV show is it's directly juxtaposed with the graduation scene where Asimu shows how deeply he trusts Zehar publicly in front of the whole school. That it doesn't even occur to him that like there's even a millimeter of a chance that this man could possibly be a traitor or a vegan or whatever. And so while the flaming background is cool in the OVA, all the narrative context around it in the experience of watching the OVA is like so neutered from what you got watching the TV show that this is like the tweet I made last night after I watched it was like the experience of watching this kind of compilation movie feels like if the only way you could watch the deleted scenes on a DVD was by watching a really bad like 70 minute cut of the three hour movie you watched. Um, because it's like sometimes I just want to watch the clip of Luke Skywalker making his green lightsaber. I don't want to watch a bad edit of the Star Wars movies in order to see that one scene. I just want to see that one scene. 
So that's what I would recommend for people if you have not seen Memory of Eden but you're interested in it, is look it up on YouTube and see if people have cut together what the new stuff is. Because I think when you watch it in context of the OVAs, it's honestly worse than if you watched it totally out of context and you're just able to give it mentally the context of as if it was in the TV show with your like assumptions about the characterization and dramatic like impulse and stuff like that that the TV show had. Yeah. The, the, the thing I said about it is it almost feels like this was made purely in the hopes that there would one uh -huh. be, day be like a special edition of the TV show where they could edit in some of these scenes. And I would. I do think some of these scenes would be a boon to the show as it exists. Um, there's a new final like Space Macbeth scene with Zayhart where he's like in a pool of blood and there's all these arms coming out that's very visually cool. There's a couple of those scenes on the colony early on. There's also some scenes I wouldn't include as I said. But, you know... Yeah, skip if you have it, skip through it to the new stuff. Yes, and if you can find online like uh, an edit of it together, then totally go for that. Um, if you're a diehard fan, there's some cool stuff in there. Um, probably not worth two and a half hours of your time, no. but maybe maybe worth forty minutes of the new stuff. I don't know, but you know, it's more Gundam Age stuff. Probably the last we'll ever get. So there you go. I'm not sure why it was made. I'm very confused at the like overall project of it and who it was for, but there you go. So I well, I mean, one of the reasons why it's made is it's just a very cheap way to extend some of the revenue you have, right? Because right. You're, you're using a huge amount of material from the original show. Um, I think one of the reasons it was made, and this is something that will connect um, to a show we'll do in a while, um, but eventually once we get to Gundam Build Fighters Try, we will come back around to a man named uh, Shinya Wathada, who is the director of this OVA series, which I believe this is the first project that, that that he directed at Sunrise. And then when you get to Build Fighters Try, they have him direct that show. And then he's also the director on the Gundam Build Divers and Build Divers Rerise shows. So, so I think that's one of the reasons why some of those projects happen is to give someone who's been like a unit director or an episode director and give them a project that has slightly higher level responsibilities that is a very low like risk kind of project that's like hey cut your teeth on this a little bit to manage a bigger staff um and then then eventually you get to make your own tv show later i think that's one of the reasons probably why they did it looking at some of the people that they put on the staff specifically that are just on the the ova version interesting yeah well the more you know sean should we tell the people what we're going to be doing next time yes because next time on weekly suit gundam it's not going to be weekly suit gundam because next time on Weekly Suit Gundam, it's going to be Weekly Genesis Evangelion. Because we are going back, Jonathan, and revisiting the most controversial episode we have ever done in the history of podcasting. Which was the two episodes we did looking at Neon Genesis Evangelion. Where we, you know, aren't huge fans of uh, that show overall. Though, you know, Eva does a lot of really interesting... People play. have twisted that into us hating yes. that show. I That is not an accurate... Claim of either of our positions. Yeah. I do not hate Evangelion. No, it's a show we both have complicated feelings on. That I think like there's a lot of bad shit in that show, but there's also a lot of really good shit in Evangelion. But there have been a series of movies, uh, Evangelion movies called the Rebuild movies that have been coming out for like 15 years, basically. Um, for as long as you and I have known each other. Yes, um, and uh, we said on that podcast that when all four of the Evangelion Rebuild movies were, would be available in the West that we would do a podcast talking about those films. And the day is coming, Jonathan, because in two weeks on Amazon Prime, there will be, I believe it's all of them, correct? That will be up on Amazon Prime at that point? So I'm not sure. They've said they're going to have all four, but they have not said when the other three are coming. All yeah. we know is part the fourth movie, which is called 3.0 plus 1.0, because of course it is, that is coming Friday, August 13th. 
Um, you and I are going to probably start watching before then. I have the other three movies, yes, so, so I don't do I. need the Amazon Prime versions. But that's it'll premiere for the public on Amazon Prime on August 13th. Uh, that's a Friday, our Monday podcast that week. So two weeks from now, so keeping up our kind of bi-weekly, weekly suit Gundam schedule. So that will be our episode for Monday, the 16th of August, will be part three of Weekly Genesis Evangelion as we look at those rebuild movies, which I've been super excited to watch. I'm really curious to see because at a, I, my knowledge of it is that the first movie is based on TV show stuff. And then from that point on, it's pretty much just yes. a new Evangelion story. And I like Hideaki Anno, and I am always rooting for him. So I am curious to see these movies and what I feel. Everything I've heard about the fourth movie is that it's fantastic. So I am curious about that. Yeah, so yeah, I'm very excited to watch these as well because I have the same sense um, as you do about them. And I, and I'm, I think they're going to be pretty interesting. So that will be two weeks from now. We'll talk about all four of the Rebuild movies. Um, 1.0 through to Evangelion 3.0 plus 1.0 thrice upon a time. Um, we'll get to make fun of a lot of very weird, bad subtitles because all these movies have ridiculous subtitles. Have you looked up the, the last movie's title in Japanese? Um, no. Um, so in Japanese, they don't do that 1.0, 2.0 stuff. They're, they're basically, they're, they're like new, they're called like new Evangelion. Yeah, Sheen Evangelion. The, I see it here. Right. The fourth movie is Sheen Evangelion and then it's like an abstract symbol and that's the name of the movie. Yes, it's Sheen Evangelion, like Geki Joban, which basically means movie version, which you put in front of like everything that's basically movie in Japanese. Uh, yes, and then it's like a a thin vertical line and a slightly thicker vertical line that I thought was just like a like artifact on this Wikipedia page, but that's just actually something that you can type somehow. Interesting. Yep. So, so yeah. there you so go. So we'll we'll be talking about all those movies, including Sheen Evangelion, Geki Joban, Line Line. Um, two weeks from now. If you're someone who's not into Eva, just to put it on your radar, if you're waiting for our Gundam thing, um, after Evangelion, we'll be moving on to Gundam Build Fighters, which is the next Gundam show. So if you're you're looking forward to that, but you're not an Eva person, that's where we'll be going in the future past Eva. But in the, the near term, we're going to be taking a, a step back, back in time, forward in time, sideways in time, all manners of time and whatever the fuck is going to happen in these Evangelion movies. Because I think uh, next time we do a podcast, Jonathan, we're going to have to talk about some crazy fucking shit on this show. 